A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That is the end of the Red Rising series so far published. So that means through the end of Dark Age by Pierce Brown. Catch up. Finish the book. Catch up. Listen to us. there this is cross and i'm pj and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club so the last few weeks we've gotten pretty coy with like the if you haven't gotten to this point in the intro and i thought you were going to do it again today like if you haven't seen the very thick like page at the back of the book turn around now something like that. i don't know i don't fucking mm, know yeah i thought you were gonna get creative with i mean it, we're but we're at like the end end though so it felt a little yeah. bit different but i i feel <laughs> you i maybe could have done like if you didn't see selenius's thick thighs turn back <laughs> you know could have done that i guess selenius's thick thighs it could have yeah. worked right off the okay. bat with the quote of the episode here i yeah. am showing up <laughs> so today is two different things for everyone today is our 14th and final episode covering dark age by pierce brown the novel itself and we're going to tackle chapters 86 through the end but in addition to that it is our year of being of being a published podcast this is our first anniversary which is fantastic that the stars aligned this way and that everything else worked out so yeah it's pretty cool yeah yeah right yeah pretty cool I think we celebrate a little bit. Yeah. How do we yeah. celebrate on this show? <laughs> we drink, don't we? Isn't that, <laughs> I think so. It's it's an unfortunate side effect of the show, but it's also, I mean, it's, you know, there's like a combination of things where it's like, yeah, it's the point, but also, it, yeah, it's the point. You're right. Good call. Um, yeah. So to everyone at home who's listening to us, uh, if you're at work or whatever, when a lot of people listen to us or driving or something like that, don't drink right now unless you can do mm -hmm. it on the job, in which case, good for you. Don't condone that. Um, but if you're at home enjoying us or later when you get home, take a swig for us. Uh, cheers, PJ, and everyone who listens to us for a year. We are so happy to have the community and crowd around us that we do, and we can't believe the sort of reaction to our show over the last year and all the sort of overflowing of uh, of kindness and encouragement as we've like ironed out the kinks and, and grown. So thank you so much to everyone. Yeah. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been such a fun journey to be on, and I'm so happy to so happy to share it with all of you. Yeah. Cheers. So, cheers. Um, with that, though, let's talk about what we just cheers. Yeah. <laughs> so, PJ, what are you drinking? What did you just drink? So, I have titled it The Red Rain. And effectively what it is is a Toronto, which is two ounces of rye, half an ounce of Fernet Branca, half a tablespoon of simple syrup, and then I... Didn't have rye. So I did it with bourbon, hence the name change. And it usually calls for an orange garnish, and I didn't have an orange. So we're going garnishless and bourbon instead of rye. So you should have stuck a knife in it. Like just put a knife in it for the photo. Uh, 
You know what I, I mean? Should, you, yeah, I should have. Like, just for no reason. <laughs> than to have the knife. Like Something like that. That would have been good. <laughs> um, following that up, though, is one of my... It's almost like my white whale beer. This is uh, 2015 Surly Darkness. It's a beer that I've had in my fridge for a very long time. It is, I think, the first Russian Imperial Stout I ever bought. This is, uh, God, it's such a good beer. It it is one of the last beers that Tom Hogg had a, had a really like major hand in at at Surly. He eventually moved on from the company he started, helped start, to uh, Three Floyds, where he's still at, of which this, is nationally distributed comparatively. I mean, Surly's. Certainly gets around, but yeah, Yeah. you can find three Floyds a lot more, I think. But this is just so, it's what I compare all other Russian Imperials to. It is, it is my favorite Russian Imperial stout of all time. And I just cracked this for the first time in a long time. I'm I'm having this beer and it, it holds up. It's so good. It's rich. It's chocolatey. It is just perfect and i think this is probably the right time to open it so if you're sitting on a 2015 surly darkness it is it is in its prime right now it is drinking so 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 well so sorry to get gushy over over no i mean over a beer but i mean good good for uh for you for the beer for everyone involved i mean i i feel like i um you know just uh just loved the whole breakdown there so i yeah i mean i also love darkness i think that it's fantastic i would agree with you that it's kind of the white whale it was the first serious stout an imperial russian stout that i ever had followed by big rick shortly thereafter but you know it's Mm -hmm. um i am very happy to be here at this point and you know drinking darkness for a very kind of dark episode makes some makes some sense (laughs) yeah that definitely uh definitely helped swayed my my choice to pick it it, uh, it fits you know it's yeah, kind of it's exactly. an interesting culmination and conclusion um similarly to to hop in here i am drinking a gift that was given to me but to the both of us really um i think my parents made a joke that it's my christmas present which may also make sense that i would have to share it because that sounds like an oldest child thing to do for sure here's this <laughs> present make sure that you share some with pj um <laughs> my parents went to seattle to visit my sister and her new gig and whatnot uh, and went to a distillery up there called Woodenville and bought their cask strength bourbon, of which uh, they also, for our one year anniversary, put and etched uh, the podcast name on it. So Words and Whiskey branded ish bourbon from uh, from Woodenville, a small Washington distillery. And it is fucking delicious. Like this is one of the better bourbons that I've had in a while. I think I literally talked about the end of days bourbon. <laughs> last week that i had a little bit of which is also crazy good these are two of the best bourbons that i've ever had hands down that's awesome so yeah and yeah neither of them are coming from some. kentucky huh yeah right <laughs> so technically they aren't <laughs> bourbons or whatever but but you know um yeah it's it's fantastic so i'm just having two ounces of this straight up um, to follow that up, because it's, you know, I mean, it's a 60% whiskey, so let's be very clear that two ounces is not a weak pour by any stretch. I also have an eight-minute song, which I've talked about before on the show from Wilmington Brewing Company, and then 
for one of our patrons of whom said do do this i also grabbed a wild berry truly out of the fridge (laughs) (laughs) here i am living my best life it's the last episode of the show fuck me up if i somehow end up with uh with an empty drink two empty drinks uh i will go grab a (laughs) seltzer as well all right all right that seems that seems legit (sighs) all right pj so here's the thing we have last week's predictions, right? But it's got to be all the predictions at this point because we're out of book. We are out of book. Um, though we do intend to cover the next book. So if there's we, anything that doesn't get answered, we can roll it over, can't we? I mean, we can. And we'll, I think we'll we resolve will. it for now. If it hasn't been resolved, I'll drink for it. How about that? Sure. Yes. I don't know. If, I don't know. That if seems any of them have been. That like, seems unresolved. legit. I mean, but one of them is really kind of a. a more of a you know a positing question that we talked about a little bit uh but yeah so with that we'll talk about the predictions so the first one here is will lyria retain full control of her thoughts or will the squid take over some function you said i think it'll be a slower takeover i think for now she'll have some conscious thought and interaction with the squid but she won't be puppeted that seems right as far as we know for now she is completely in control of her own faculties but has added sort of information given to her by figment yeah yeah i think the other part that we would be you know a little bit ignorant to ignore is that obviously she has not only additional information but she has longing for other things so i it's not that i think that yeah a slow takeover is wrong but i think she is kind of being puppeted but she can resist it like she's there are she's elements being influenced but not puppeted yeah It's instilling a sense of longing, but it's not saying you're doing this now. Right. Right. It's not not taking away her agency. It's a fair point. Fair point. Um, Thoughts? Do I drink for this one? I feel like that's the right call. I think I think so. Yeah. So cheers. Cheers. I think I agree. For the most part, we'll see how it fully pays off in the next book. But I don't think that I think will hold over. But, I don't think it's completely yep. resolved, but I don't think until she gets to the Oculus or we we realize what a fully functioning figment could how it could impact her. I um, mm-hmm. I think I agree with you. All right. From Lee Bronx on Reddit. At the beginning of part four pride, we were given a quote from Selenius's meditations. The world is a maze without a center. Become it or be forever lost. There's a fairly famous mythical creature who guarded a maze or a labyrinth once upon a time. And wouldn't you know it, one of our characters uses said mythical creature as his moniker and or symbol. Do you think this foreshadows anything? And if so, what might that be for Lysander, for Darrow, etc.? Or is it simply a red herring? So this is more of like a metaphorical thematic question of which i really love really a big fan of this question Mm -hmm. because it let us kind of talk about it and break it down and you know our our sort of usual style um but yeah go ahead verbatim what i said last time i don't think pierce would unintentionally make a parallel like that in regards to mythology so it's definitely intended and furthermore i think it's not laid out obviously enough to be a red herring I think that it foreshadows Apple taking the reins in some part of the next iteration of the society. Not sure if that means sovereignship, unless Lysander dies, but some sort of leading spot. That seems likely at this point. I don't know. Nobody knows at this point, but obviously there's conversation together at the end of this book. I don't know how to read it. What do you think? 
You know, I think that this is more of a, a kind of metaphorical question, and I think this will really play in, you know, to some degree in the next book a little bit. I think that there is an argument to be had about navigating the maze that Lysander's doing with um at, at the end of this obviously at the end of the book with Apollonius so yeah I don't think you're right about him foreshadowing taking the reins because he doesn't want the reins right like he but you said of some part so I guess like the reality is is that more than anything else Apple wants to be the number one warrior of all time right like that's his his sort of lust what he seeks like arch imperator yeah, maybe, but I, I don't even know if that's it, because he's more, he's almost like more one-on-one than anything else, especially with his desires. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think I would argue that you're wrong and you should drink now, but I think that this is a holdover <laughs> until we see the payoff. Sounds good. Um, for where he would have landed or where he should land. Deal. I'm excited to see where that goes. Yeah, ag- agreed. I think that this book poses a lot of questions <laughs> for the next <laughs> book, for sure. Um, there's, yep. there's a lot. There's a lot that even unfolds in like the very last 10, 20 pages that it's like, what the, we lost an entire planet. Like, how did that happen? (laughs) 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 Fuck, we've been fighting for Mercury this whole book and we lost a planet in pages. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's, that's where my brain went. But (laughs) so the final prediction here, what's next for Lysander after his victory? How does Atalantia react? You said Atalantia wants power. She'll see Lysander as a threat to the claim of power, so I don't think she'll accept him with open arms. She'll be at odds, potentially to the point of being an actual enemy to Lysander. I don't know if I'm wrong yet. Okay. She literally planned an assassination for him. Um, like I feel like that's pretty enemy territory right there. But I feel like by the end of this, she's not fucking around with it anymore. She's committed, you know, because she sees she the is. power gain especially mm. because of the conversation with Calendora, like that Calendora has where she saw Lysander as a chess piece on the board to be played. Right. Yeah. And I think it, and this is a conversation I think we'll have more later, but to some degree, I think that Calendora could have been referencing either using Lysander's death as kind of like a martyrdom, you know, like a symbol, a martyr so that she could perpetuate power or now using him as a symbol of hope instead, combination of hope and fear. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's fair. I, I don't think that it's a threat any longer unless Lysander starts acting up. Then it'll become threatening for his life. Well, I, I think we'll get into this definitely later, but I don't think Lysander has innocent intentions with his betrothal. You know? <laughs> no. I think I think there's something <laughs> ulterior going on there, but yeah. we'll see. Oh, man, for sure. So I think that's a drink for you. But again, I think that this is probably a holdover. So I think that all three of these questions will end up going with us into book six whenever it comes out. Um, And we will definitely revisit them in whatever our intro episode ends up being to book six. That way we just know what's going on. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So sweet. With that, let's get into the last chapters of Dark Age. Every time I'm saying this, like I'm getting like these little like, oh, this is the last time. Like this is fuck this is the last time we're gonna like really talk about these folks for a long time yeah it's potentially maybe so, it'll come out tomorrow yeah it's not gonna come out tomorrow you don't it's know not how book marketing works mm. <laughs> you're fired so chapter 87 lysander ghost we open up this last section of the book with lysander reflecting on war and the pain inflicted herein but he almost uses them like excuses he almost uses the the whole thing as, as this sort of excuse 
I could no more have stopped the bleeding than the Praetorians I left her with, but leave her I did, and there is little nobility in that. There is little nobility to any of this. Yeah, at least in this moment, he kind of recognizes his lack of honor that we were pointing out last week. I don't really think that that was ever lost on him, but at least he's making a note of it internally. Yeah, I think it only becomes more exasperated later on, right? Like, there's an entire section where he has, post kind of reading in on Darrow and everything else, he has an even deeper reflection on honor being kind of completely a waste of time, which is so interesting, and we'll definitely yeah. talk a lot about that. But here, at the very least, he he reflects initially on the fact that, like, I wasn't honorable. War isn't honorable. I don't need to be honorable. And it's like, well... You've been preaching a lot of honor. You've been a man of honor to your word, but now your actions are dishonorable. So, of course, you're stepping that way. Of course, you're thinking that way. Right. It's um, it's a tough, tough core point to follow, for sure. For sure. Especially after, I mean, we've been reading this dude for two books now, right? Like, he's only ever talked about, like, honor and, like, glory to some degree and sort of the, the glory to be to be had, to be earned, um, and obviously he was disillusioned of that early on in this book, but it, it really was still there was some still some semblance of a sticking point there that I kind of felt like he was working towards. But we we really lose in the last section of this book where he's like, no, 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 not that being dishonorable is a good thing, but like honor is for for the weak to some degree. Yeah, it was a really interesting like turn and kind of out of nowhere, I felt like. And maybe it's not out of nowhere. Maybe it's just him internally justifying his actions. I think, yeah, I think it's that. I think that's, yeah, that makes more sense. But it, mm. he he has, so we, we talked about last week. I think it was last week. We talked about how Lysander, how his perspective on the other colors has changed mm -hmm. in, the, in these last, really the last few sections. And... Someone today pointed out, one of, one of our listen, listeners pointed out that subsequent readings, in hindsight, they he's been more consistent than we're like making him out to be. So mm -hmm. I'd be interested in going back and, and seeing that and furthermore applying that to his, his discussions on honor and whether or not he, we, whether or not he puts as much weight into it as we're making him out to. So I, I think that's a really apt comparison because he definitely, you know, this is this is kind of a side effect of the show, right? Which is what I, I brought up earlier to one of our patrons is talk about the books, but I obviously generally know more than you do, right? And so in the moment, our sort of reactions are on, are on different pages. Um, no more about the story. <laughs> not more. No more in general, PJ. We all know you're smarter than I am. This is my one opportunity where I can just flex my creative thinking writing reading li media literacy muscles and uh have these kind of discussions but <laughs> outside of this arena i i often lose but so i i get to kind of have this this sort of leg up on you and rereading this it became clearer earlier that he was more of a spacist which is why i i tried to like bring it up but not make it a big deal as we were going through um, but I also couldn't oversell it or undersell it like we were kind of talking about last week because I don't want to completely shape or jade your opinion. Yeah. I just want to acknowledge it enough so that the audience knows that, you know, I'm not skipping over it. And don't think it's lost on me, like how difficult yeah. of a job that might be for you. <laughs> like, I understand there's frustration 
PJ, I didn't spoil I a like, single thing for 3,000 pages. <laughs> except you for didn't. Harmony's name. Yeah. Which, is that a spoiler? Mm. Hey, guess what? A new character gets introduced, and her name starts with an H as well. Like, yeah, that's right. not a fucking spoiler. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Which is bonkers. Like, it's absolutely crazy that uh, that we've gone this far without slip-ups. So, I commend you. Thank you. I appreciate you. And... Lysander is a spacist. <laughs> oh, okay. We went different directions with that. <laughs> hey, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to knock you down sometimes. That's, that's a fair point. We're going to talk a lot more about Lysander's spacism in a bit here, but Lysander throwing down the trophy of the Reaper's defeat, I think is an excellent little moment for him. Um, I say this, of course, not there's, there's this other component here too, where it's like, guys, I don't really like Lysander. I like him as a character. I think he's an interesting perspective, but I don't actually like it, but it can still be well-written and have me disagree with it. That's just a fact of writing. Like that's just reality. Um, but I, I think as it even floors Ajax, like it's, it's just a, a glorious moment for him. Right. I also enjoy that Cicero stands up for Lysander here, you know, after meeting him in the desert and kind of being, you know, kind of, he was he was in Lysander's corner up until a point um, when it came down to the Praetorians and whatnot. But now he's like he's he's like, dude's legit. I questioned him at first, but I I believe um, it, it almost gives me a um, God is a John or Paul, the first apostle that follows Jesus. My brain is on this because of midnight mass. But um, anyway, point being, he's got his kind of first believer that that believed in him early on. And, you know, there's like a little bit of fealty there, you know, like he's kind of reclaiming the loon name. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, really, really interesting moment. Tension from a lot of different perspectives. I just appreciated the silent rage that Ajax is clearly feeling in this moment Mm -hmm. when all of his Praetorians like kneel to, Lysander. I mean, gotta be not gotta be not a only here, but for like the entire back oh, half yeah. of this this yeah. section, right? Like yeah. he is drunk and pissed and obviously irate with the whole situation. He loses his aunt with benefits. Like there's just a whole <laughs> lot of a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aunt with benefits is going to haunt me. The fact that I said that is just aunt, <laughs> horrifying. Aunt with benefits. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely a little. Oy. There's some. There's some gross <laughs> shit all over the place that has to get untangled. Yeah, we'll get there when we get there because that's definitely a whole fucking conversation for sure. Um, but, you know, we were, we were kind of talking about honor a little bit earlier and it's going to feed throughout the conversation with Lysander, of course, but even Lysander recognizes that the victory that he won against Era was a cheap one. It was kind of an honorless one. It wasn't a true test of each other whatsoever and now that all of his role models he looked to or you know felled they're dead he, as he thinks he can't help but repeat the oft whispered phrase the build comes at the end they got what they deserved they use cheap tricks and they had cheap tricks used against them and it feels like a perversion of that phrase a little bit you know like yes that is they'll yeah. probably die they could die they could die similarly but it uh, just something about him using that phrase feels wrong to me in this context yeah um his fight with darrow being cheap this is where I think he's at odds with himself because mm-hmm. he's trying to rationalize his decision in a way that doesn't make him a fucking coward. 
Like he, yeah. he knows that he's not, um, he's not skilled enough to fight him one-on-one. Like he's not skilled enough to fight him honorably. So instead he takes down the entire idea of honor in his head, which is a little bit of a nuke and pave, but <laughs> like, man, it's, it's not, I don't know. He, he is kind of broken, I think. And we don't see the fracture so much. We just see the pieces getting put back together a little bit. Yeah, it's hmm. the the fracture of the decision and the fracture, I think, of his sort of turn towards the dishonorable is one that happened in the moment last week um, when he was making the decision, realizing that he couldn't beat him one on one. And he makes mm-hmm. the comment about, you know, the the equestrians and how golds, you know, if one thing they know how to ride horses, you know, comparatively. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Hold, hold that over all of the colors. So, you know, he he acknowledges it in the moment. But in reflection, that's where he he's starting to just now break down kind of the, his honor differential, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 It's I mean, <sighs> fuck Lysander, but also glad to have this lens <laughs> on the story. It'd be like, you know, the, the way that I think about Lysander in a way is if we were able to sit in Vader's head and Vader's perspective for the three movies, you know, to a degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that Except would be for cool. we see a different heel turn. But, you know. We'll see. So our yeah. our final scene of the chapter is witnessing the escape of the Archimedes with Darrow on board and Cassius flying away and escaping. They make eye con- eye contact and everything like that, and they clearly see each other and realize that one another are alive. I have a qu- question for you about the last line here, though. My true heart is laid bare, awash with exaltation, clouded with confusion, pure with purpose. The war goes on. I think this is an odd little phrase for Lysander, but I think it kind of fits the melancholy of his character in the moment while he's reflecting on sort of the, the loss of honor and how honor really doesn't exist as he thinks about it, you know, because he's like, I couldn't win with honor. I had to cheat. Had he accomplished a mission he'd been seeking? He he had just accomplished a mission he'd been seeking for an incredibly long time. But this sort of extension of the conflict, meaning that his enemy survived, he responds positively to as though he suddenly has another opportunity to beat them honorifically. Uh it's difficult to parse. What what do you think? I think there's a couple points to be made there. I think one is yeah. that he he had been mourning Cassius for a long time. And maybe not out externally, but like clearly Cassius is somebody who raised him and somebody who truly influenced him. Mm-hmm. He he talks about him in his monologues pretty regularly. And I would go as far as to say that he kind of sees him as a father figure of sorts. So there's there's that. So just being him knowing that Cassius is alive, I think mm-hmm. probably pulls on a little bit a little bit of a string there towards the positive. And also he my in my head, he is doing everything he can actively to convince himself that honor isn't important. And this presents him an opportunity to regain some honor and not have to struggle against that anymore. I I think that that's a good point because I think it does give him a a release valve, right? Where now he can make different decisions and he doesn't need to consider, you know, the, to some degree, the honorifics of what he did, right? He's kind of given, he's like, oh, I didn't win. It wasn't dishonorable because I didn't kill him, but I'm still going to wear this victory proudly. You know, so he still is, he kind of like has a chance for his own honorific redemption. Right. At the same time is also, you know, kind of the exaltation of Cassius's, like you said, father figure being alive. I don't know. It's that one's less 
that that one's less rooted in any sort of contextual like yeah basis but but he talks about cassius a lot doesn't he oh yeah he's he talks about cassius pretty frequently like he's definitely on his mind a decent amount because i mean he spent a decade with him he spent as long with cassius as he did with octavia yeah so that even more i think not not that octavia wasn't around when his parents were around but when did how old was he when his parents were murdered how old was he when his parents were murdered uh i want to say it was six or seven Okay, so he only spent like three years. No, he was still being raised by Octavia, though. Like was that he? was still a thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was thinking she took over the main like raising. She definitely did like all the time. But okay. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Then. But still, still, the the point still stands. He half his life was with Cassius, mm-hmm. teaching him things and raising, really, truly, effectively raising him. He was ten years old. Yeah. Right. So. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- even we, we can also point at Pax, right? And like Pax is a very well-educated 10-year-old and, you know, very or 11-year-old, I guess, 10, 11. So it becomes difficult to parse, like, obviously age in the future and sort of that impact. But it shouldn't, though, because I guess it should. I guess you should take that into consideration that I, they're no longer considered homo sapiens, correct? I feel like that's well, con- that conversation is made at one point. The conversation is made by a bunch of spacists, so it's not really a good... The, the people who have the conversation or who talk about it that way are the... Board of Quality Control. And Board of Quality Control and uh, the Jackal are the two people who really okay. have the conversation. Okay. Um, so, like, it don't... Take it with a grain of salt is kind of my thought on it but but there's there's clearly i guess do we know were golds genetically modified to be gold we know that learning is easier we know that a lot of different things are easier because of technological bone, advancements bone right? density like bone density is higher of course um yeah to i mean there, there are a number scale? of things like that? to a ridiculous scale golds are fucking crazy and were they i guess my question is were they evolved slowly and selectively chosen and like groomed to be this way or were they carved? Uh, mostly groomed, but also there's no doubt that their genetics were messed with along the lines. And there's like diversion- it's a combination of the two. There's there's no good answer because there isn't an answer. I would I would go as far to say based on the fact that there are so many different traits based like among different colors that they are effectively different species. All of all of the colors, I would say, are effectively different species, all diverging from Homo sapien. Yeah, I mean, there's there's potential, right? Like the the blues are really just more programmed to interface the way that they do. Reds are really just slaves. I would say that there are only a handful that are seriously different that aren't just bred in different directions. Um, but yeah, I, I can definitely yeah. understand enough about that, but. I think that's neither. I think that's kind of neither here nor there on this question, if that makes sense. Like, no, you're you're probably like it's getting into the weeds. It's getting completely outside of the scope of the question. But we haven't had a conversation like this, like really in depth, in a long time. Yeah, not since um, probably Morningstar when it got called out at the beginning by the jackal, yeah. and that's where yeah, it kind of exactly. like it was like, well, are they? Aren't they? Um, and I again, I don't think that we have a clear answer. What I will say is that actually this is something we'll probably get into a little bit more in the prequel series. So 
you know, obviously there's without spoiling anything, what we know about kind of the way that the prequel series is like, we know the origin of Severo and that kind of thing. So there's going to be a little bit more of a genealogical discussion and uh, sort of Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll see a little bit more of that. So cool. I can say that and have it not be a spoiler. So sweet because we kind of know we know the end result. Yeah, that's fair. Did you have any other thoughts on uh, on the Lysander Dario Cassius uh, exchange interaction that happens? So you mentioned them making eye contact, and for whatever reason, I don't remember that happening. I just remember him seeing the Archimedes and knowing that Cassius was alive. So the they they specifically say in what I imagine to be a very like Millennium Falcon esque scene where like Han is standing on the landing platform and it's open as they're taking off. Him standing there holding a pillar at the bottom of a landing platform and them making eye contact across the distance. Okay. It's, it's very explicit. Like it is. I don't know how I missed that then. A knight fills the open garage bay. It is not Darrow. His armor is brilliant white. His helmet like that of a rising sun. He retracts to reveal his face. And for a moment, our eyes meet Cassius. The door closes. The Archimedes ripples translucent from a cloaking device. Far more. Wait, where did it go? Wasn't wait. Oh, for a moment, our eyes meet. Yeah. Duh. Yeah. I broke yeah. It. yeah. Right. I was like, did I skip it? Did I miss it? Did I imagine it? <laughs> <laughs> I was hallucinating after I read it. Okay. Well, yeah. So there you go. But it's, you know, it's a minor, it's a minor thing. Um, It's not a big deal. Yeah. No, it, it just caught me off guard when you asked the question because I didn't, I didn't remember that, but that makes more sense. So. Okay. Very okay. cool. Okay. Uh, with that, we go into chapter 88, Lyria, our last Lyria chapter of the book. Um, Lyria, Mercury has fallen. This chapter does a lot of exposition in a, a little amount of time. Uh, I would say a lot of these chapters actually do. You could almost write an entire book on all the shit that happens between point A and point B, especially from like Diomedes and Ajax's perspective. Like, you could write an entire novella about Earth and like the Earth combat that happens to take Earth inside of these like couple of days. Um, definitely a thing. Yeah. But for what it's worth, we did. We've spoken about the brothers a lot. We actually had a, like a whole like phone call conversation. We talked about it before the show. We talked about it during the show um, about whether or not they were they were like identical or is it referring to the three of them or is it you know it was a very like on and off conversation but uh we had i had a couple of different people come out of the woodwork and it's only been at this point 48 hours <laughs> from, from release who are like hey those those men those boys those dudes those reds were lyria's brothers and i went oh shit of course they were, because two of them look like, and the third is the brother-in-law that went away. We've got Dagon, Angus, and Varen. Did, and did we know their names at that point? We did. Yep. We, fuck, we know how, did, how the fuck yeah. did we miss that? Right. I, and, like, the, the names are brought up, like, all the way back in the, the origin of Iron Gold, and, like, we don't, the names aren't said um, when Darrow's talking to them. Like, he doesn't mention the names, but obviously, like, it, it seems like a very oh. clear point of dramatic irony for us to for for us to shift from perspective to perspective and be like oh two brothers and a third one who acknowledges that he's a brother but doesn't look like the other okay well that's logically the three the, you know the two brothers and the brother-in-law yeah no, that makes sense logically i thought you were telling me that 
it explicitly said their names. Oh, no, 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 no. Because it did not explicitly say the names. I'm repeating the names for those who don't remember. I mistook trying to, like, um, convey that they these are important people to another character as these are important people because shit's going down and they're going to, like, turn. Like... Yeah, I I took it I took it the way stupid like conspiracy theorist route and didn't even <laughs> consider the fact that Lyria had brothers here. This was this was the typical dramatic irony of which we knew that Lyria had brothers that were in war, and then we we get kind of an update that we think that they're or we know that they're in Heliopolis because that's where they were stationed um, when last she heard post the Iron Rain. So you know all the way back in Iron Gold. So like logically. This this makes sense that those three snipers are here, um, and the hope and the assumption is that they that they make it out or they survive or whatnot. But as we learn, a very limited number of people actually make it out of uh, <laughs> of this whole conflict. So I would like to be clear that even if they did mention their names, would have been lost on me. Like I wasn't paying attention to the names. I was I was just hunting for intent, and I was like. <laughs> laser focused on some sort of negativity because that just seems to follow darrow fucking everywhere so (laughs) even if it was laid out entirely that these are their names fucking would have missed it you know yeah fair point i'm glad people pointed it out because i think even even now without that i would have been lost on it that's fair good point so with that actually moving into the chapter itself, uh, the funeral for Ulysses is really tough. Uh, it's it's obviously a hard moment, I think, especially for Victor and Electra, but especially because Severo is missing here as well. There's there's obvious pain, and the Julii ritual of the swimming to the sun is obviously a fascinating one, obviously very emotionally resonant, but it does also have an odd resemblance to me of that of the Raw family. And walking to the sun grave, you know, kind of upon death. Um, obviously, there's a difference in, or not upon death, but, you know, upon approaching death. Um, it's it's definitely an interesting kind of thing, the way that golds do death rituals. What do you, you think? What do you make of it? So, very interesting ritual. And I I think, I, I don't know if I really like the comparison to the raw ritual, because that is somebody choosing to die and trying to get somewhere in the, in the throes of it. Whereas this is a remembrance kind of thing. And furthermore, the Julii are very, very strong people physically, mentally, and exteriorly like on, on the exterior emotionally. And we've obviously seen some emotion peek through cause we've been very, very close to Victra for a, a couple books. But don't for the forget most that Antonia part, was a Julii. I I know, but we didn't <laughs> see her get emotional very often, did we? No, yeah, she she just got murdered in Morningstar. Yeah. So it's fine. So solitarily swimming to the horizon allows for solitude in personal reflection. Whatever <laughs> emotional outbursts might happen, um, on top of physical catharsis. Like, fuck, I've, I've gone and cried during swim practice before for that exact reason. I don't know if you have, but I definitely used swimming as like a place to just let my emotions out when I didn't want to share it with people. 
And then there's the added ritual of swimming back if and only if there's a light to guide you home. I mean, sometimes not even then, but that silently allows family members and friends to show their support for those people that are grieving. Like, I love the ritual. I think it's perfect for that family. I think they'd be healthier if they let their emotions out and let and, and showed some semblance of weakness sometimes when it's necessary and when it's needed or when it's uh, appropriate without changing the way that their, their sort of emotions work. This is an amazing ritual. I really like it. This struck me. This more, more than there, there were a couple scenes in this last section. And honestly, the only scenes in the book, the only scenes in the series that really got me to like feel and almost, almost tear up. This was one of them for that reason. I really loved it. I, Okay, multifaceted breakdown. So I'm going to start from the beginning, work towards the end. Uh, first up, so we've got three different parts. One, we've got the breakdown comparison of, of uh, Romulus and, and this and sort of the, the raw versus Barca fashion. And I think I think you're right. I think that it is a little bit, it isn't perfectly apt to compare the two because one is the person striking out on their own at the end of their life, choosing to kind of pursue this path because they know that they're going to die. Um, and then the other is sort of a celebration of life in its own right and, and sort of a, a live grieving process. And they are different, but they both being gold fam- familial rituals, the similar like one is one is a pursuit of grief or one is a, a grief relief valve. And the other one is sort of honorific where everyone else grieves, which is interesting. Um you know, not not a good direct comparison, but I think that it's, you know, at least worth kind of mentioning and comparing. I mean, we've only seen so many gold funerals. It's either that or shot into the sun. Um, right. So that's one point. Second point uh, regarding swimming in general. I definitely uh, agree with you. I think one of the most interesting things about being a swimmer versus running versus biking versus anything else is swimming. You don't you can buy waterproof headphones. You can listen to music. But in general, it's generally just you and your thoughts like it is literally just you and whatever is going on in your head. And that is cathartic in some ways. It can be anxiety inducing in others. It can be a, a stress release valve. Swimming is it's you know, it's kind of like a deprivation tank, but like you're not completely deprived of all senses. So that's the way that I've always thought about it. And yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that swimming is a wonderful emotional release valve for a number of reasons. You really kind of focus in on yourself and your brain. Um, mm-hmm. to that point. And then the third point that I had on this was the sort of emotional moments throughout the series. And I definitely agree with you. This one, this one hurts because you, you can see kind of the intent and the pain and sort of the, the fight that she goes through throughout the section to go swim out and then later show up, swim back and immediately go into training because she feels this this desire for vengeance and and this sort of pain, this crafted and she just has embraced that and understands what she has to do next. And that's, that's like resolve on a level. Few other characters in any story that I've ever read have shown. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, fuck yeah, Victra always been a favorite, but like, especially after this book. Yeah. Going off of that sort of comment, 
this almost makes me want a like Lyria or not Lyria a Victor. I thought you were going to say a child. <laughs> no, fuck. <no. laughs> just I was afraid. Anyway, no, continue. Uh, a Lyria. point of view from Victra. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I I think this is better. Not not seeing her internal thoughts, I think, is mm-hmm. better. I like I like it more. I don't know if we'd get the same sort of. I don't think I would get the same evocation of feelings now. If, if it, it were was, a P-vo- if it was POV. in her, in her point of view, I'm sure we'd get something more out of it. But I, I I think seeing her go off on her own and just not knowing what's going on in her head, it it lets me explore that a little bit more yeah i um i i totally agree with you and i think that that's one of the things that i like really liked about uh the first trilogy when we were thinking about virginia mustang as well is that it was always darrow's perspective on what mustang is thinking and i'm not saying that we lost anything by gaining mustang's perspective matter of fact i think we gained a lot on the story but it does change the the perspective because you can in a character that you're not in the POV in, you're you're allowed to speculate a lot more on what they're thinking. So, right, exactly. I totally totally feel that. Yeah, it's it's emotionally resonant in a ton of ways, and if nothing else, this book strengthens my my love for Victra undoubtedly, wholeheartedly. And like, you know, she got introduced as a character in like the very intro of Golden Sun, and she was like kind of shitty, and she's the you know sister of Antonia, and she turns out to be the most loyal, hardest, craziest badass like ever. When when we were talking back in um back with Howlerpod in uh, in our uh, wrap up episode for the original trilogy. The reason that Aaron and I both were like Victra <laughs> and then I was like, wait, 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 I have to change. Um, <laughs> it's because I was like, I can't actually make my full argument yet. And now it's very clear why my full argument exists, because she is she's a very compassionate person, despite coming off as this like sarcastic hard ass. And, you know, she's very intense, but in that intensity has serious intent behind it. Uh, y- you know, it's just. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yep, for sure. Love 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 victra Whew, all right that was a long one but worth it so and just like that volga is gone off to rescue ephraim which we know there's nothing left to be saved and she finds that out quickly that there is little left of him as well the reflection on death throughout this chapter of both ephraim and ulysses is really really potent revenge debts and the like are definitely a characteristic that we're seeing brought up again and again throughout victra Lyria and Volga. What do you what do you make of this? Of course, like death has been a theme and a characteristic of the story, but now we're kind of we're kind of living in the grief for a second. I think it's it's not only a theme, it's also what's tied Lyria, Volga, and Victra together. And I mean to now res- it certainly has. Like well, definitely. I mean, but but just in general, like Maybe maybe Victor gets tacked on later, but Volga and Lyria kind of get tied together through hardship. All all of it's tied through hardship, and oh, man, I don't know where to go with this. I don't. It's just heartbreaking, you know. But it also means that we got to see their growth, and we talked a lot about their growth. And hardship is what has brought all of that forward. 
and they they are absolutely better characters for it. They're better people for it. If I want to like sink myself out of the scope of looking at it as book characters, like they're better people for having shared these losses and shared this death. Ephraim and Ulysses are just more where they get to support each other and they get to lean on each other and they get to harness harness these losses as fuel for their for their vengeance campaigns. Yeah, and you know, like like you said this really kind of pushes them together. That that's a big a huge component here. Um I I think that by and large Volga wasn't so much um initially but now now she's got the same drive as the other two i mean obviously lyria has been fighting for the death of her sister and her nephews um and and nieces and brother of whom were all killed at the hands of harmony or the red hand victor of course also lost ulysses to the red hand and, and volga was fighting for the two of them because she's positively spirited but now she's empowered by that same rage to go after yeah I think you bring up a great point. I think that that's something we will definitely be exploring in the next book. My curiosity, this is just, you know, bonus here. Do you think, given what we know about Pierce and everything else, and given the way the story's flowing, do you think we'll get Volga as a POV? Oh, that's interesting. That's a good question. Yes, I think we will. I think we kind of have to, right? I think we, yeah. I think we have to. And... Strangely, honestly, I hope it's Ephraim's voice actor <laughs> for the audiobook. Because you just liked her voice. I liked how he His did impression Volga. Of her voice. Yeah. I, I really like how he did Volga. Lyria's did an okay job, but I think Ephraim's was better. I don't know. Yeah. But yes, I, I think we I think we kinda have to. I think we need because she's she's going off separately. And that is going to be our primary source of any sort of information on Volsung Fa. Right, right. So we have to have some kind of interaction, even if it's not, you know, it doesn't need to have the same weight as other POVs and whatnot. But I still feel like it'll be critical to entangle us with that side of the story. Yeah. Speaking of, of course, Volga's departure stings, dude. It it sucks. It's the right move in many ways, as it appears, but I, I can't imagine walking to the jaws of that terrifying cultural monstrosity that is the Obsidians under Volsing Fa. Like, this is... Yeah, she's the inheritor of the throne. She's the inheritor of the title. She's the daughter of Ragnar and Rothka, of whom we get named here. Um, but it's not... I hmm, um, uh, I can't I actually imagine that Fa is thinking she'll come without any sort of ulterior motive. Because he's an agent of the Fear Knight, you know, like he's... Yeah, but also he's intelligent. He He knows, like, he knows about her, so I'm sure he knows what she's been up to. Right. So I can't imagine he just thinks, oh yeah, she'll come, like, work for me. Like, that's not it's gonna what be he's great. planning. My genuine thought is that he's going to use her like Ragnar was used as sort of the breeding grounds and the source of new monsters for his ranks. That's my thought. He's going to enslave her as as a a monster farm. 
I think he's going to I think he's going to try to manage as best he can. And I feel like a part of his plot is going to be capturing, like trying to capture Lyria with her and then them turning against him collectively. Like that feels in my brain because he wants her to sacrifice something to like break her down. Right. So like my thought is like, okay, how do you break Lyria? You break her by killing the one person that she cares about or one of the two people that she cares about in the world right now, which is Lyria or Victra. You said, how do you break Lyria? You mean Volga? Sorry. How do you break, how do you break Volga down? You, yeah. you kill Lyria or you make her kill Lyria. So I, I think that it might become a hunt to the Oculus and then maybe they turn on him at that point. Okay. Okay. I can see that. But I, I do understand your, your kind of point on, um, will he believe her? And I think, you know, I think it'll be his, his intent is kind of the long game. And she's thinking, regardless of the long game, you can't make up for actually killing my real father, even if you are my grandfather. Like, by real father, I mean Ephraim, not Ragnar. Um, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Mm. I miss Ephraim so much, dude. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> I'm just like, ugh. I want, I want my dose of, I want my dose of humor. I want my dose of, I want my dose of cynicism. Like, ugh. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> so much for him coming back to life right you know we don't know yet he's he's toast dude there's mm. no way i mean they've got his body parts what's left I, of him they but... buried him he's he's he, he's dead gone. they refer there's to no him way. as like barely pieces right she what, what's, she what's cradles him volga cradles him oh, and then yeah. when she stands yep. up he falls apart in her yep, arms yep, yep, like yep, yep, yep. that's yeah okay we saw his body he's not dead he, yet like he's super he's, he's super he's, dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's not there's no question now. Yeah. He's dead. But I mean, he can be reanimated. Not reanimated. <laughs> no one's been reanimated. The abomination no, I, know. I know. God, if which I didn't even write a question about, should have, but <laughs> the abomination is not the same as Adrius, even, you know, at its core. So That's true. Yeah. Oh man. So our chapter ends with a conversation between Leary and Pax setting up what could be their story in the next book. And the simple line at the end of the chapter is, have you ever heard of a city called Oculus? And oof, we've heard yes, a little we bit have. about Oculus. Yeah, we yes, have. We have heard a little she bit about yeah. Oculus. Yeah, so that Lurastes built <laughs> Oculus. Did you hear how hard I had to like I figure did. out how to say his name? <laughs> I hope all of our listeners hear how hard you see you did that. Oh my god! <laughs> I was literally biting my lip trying to figure out how to actually say it because the notes it's not natural wrong. for me at, so, <laughs> at this point yet. I still have Gil written in the notes as opposed to Glyph. Yes, you do. Like, I, I write do, Gil every time, and you did, like you, Gil you did space write correctly, and then I have to delete it. And write Glorostes, because what the fuck? Oh my god, that's funny. Because anyway, I, I had, I, I was like, all right, fucking perfect. I can just annotate this as Gil, <laughs> and I don't have to write his whole fucking name in my notes. And uh, nope, that's wrong. Glee. Is Glee. Glee doesn't look that good. Glit. 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 <laughs> fucking. It's like, it's like, it's, it's the sound of like a... A fish drowning on air like glat <laughs> glat <laughs> it's the one the one torsal <laughs> of uh 
<laughs> of their gills moving. Um, oh, man. Anyway, sorry. My bad. No, you're good. That's <laughs> apt. We know he built the city of Oculus. My assumption was it was something for PAX because of uh, some quote. I can't remember what it was off the top of my head. About a kid or about like children waking up inside of the city and having no concept outside of what's in front of them. So like they're, you know, that was where we brought up the cave originally when we discussed kind of okay. the the concept yeah. of this utopia. Yeah, something like that. But um, this is now making me wonder, did Glorostes create Figment or did he, was he uh, tasked by Figment to create a city for it? Well, so multifaceted answer here. So first off, um, Gil Ro- it is Gilrostes City by design. Glorostes. Glorostes. Sorry. Glorostes. Glorostes. City by design. Um, but it was commissioned by Quicksilver, right? So oh, my good point. mental argument is that this is Quicksilver. Um, and I would just exchange in your phrase Quicksilver, Phil, for Glorostes, right? Like, this yeah. is obviously designed by Quicksilver. There are obvious intentions. Does that also mean, because Quick has been searching for this, as we we learn, and there's a bounty out for uh, the parasite as well, the figment, um, how does Quicksilver factor into the story? How does Quicksilver right. factor so, into this? So. so I guess at that point, Quicksilver isn't isn't in the position to create something like that, as far as we understand maybe funded it but didn't create figment himself oh yeah okay right so i I could see him funding it um but But it's not his brainchild but that kind of pulls out the rug from my idea of maybe glorostes invented and created figment i mean maybe He did say, as you mentioned, like he he did say that he was a genius, right? And that like he thought that he could cure the poison and was going to work on it. Um, that's what he like left to work on amid everything else. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely interesting. So with that, any other thoughts on uh, on Lyria? That's the last time that we talked to her. That's kind of it for the most part. She has come so far. She is almost entirely a different character and that's great like it it was so cool to see this character arc and this growth we've talked a lot about her growth and her her progression but she is she is far from the person that we met her as yeah she definitely is very far off from the person that we met her as um and i i I think in a lot of ways she's she's grown and matured and in other ways, she's finally been able to take agency um, in her own perspective and um, kind of claim claim the world as her own. Move against, you know, the baddies as it is, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I feel that. I feel that. With that, we move into chapter 89, Lysander, Triumph of the Long Night. So the long night, of course, is a reference um, directly to the conflict of which just happened the the previous night's conflict on Mercury. The conversation that we start off with between Gilrostes, I said Gilrostes, and Lysander is a good one, I think, as it allows for a proper reflection on what Lysander will need to do to actually survive now that he's truly in the society's political sphere. As he says, after all, I am the best kind of hero, harmless, and you are the worst young with a name 
I enjoy as well that he's talking to Apollonius, assuming that he's around and likely that he hasn't been far away this whole time. So he's been kind of like stalking them. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, the, the conversation with Glorostes is a, a big deal for sure that happens here and very revelatory. So as far as the conversation with Apollonius goes, I really like to think that he's just been floating around Lysander the whole like this half of the book. But we kind of know that can't be the case due to the NP, right? Like his cloaking device would be fried and his his grab boots would be fried, which is where, how he left him. Like that's the right. last we saw of him. So to see him almost as like a god figure to Lysander here is kind of weird. You know, like he's almost praying to him, assuming he's there. Yes. Yeah. To to Apollonius. It's it's odd because part of this is almost do we think that Lysander is seeing him because of the mind mind's eye? Do we think that there's something else to this? You know, so yeah. it's it's definitely hard fought, but not not 100 percent on um on what exactly it is. But it does kind of seem like praying in that way. You're right. Yeah, it, it's odd. Mm-hmm. I like it, though. Yeah, for sure. Um, do, do you have any other thoughts on the sort of Glorosti's impact over the course of this chapter? We don't. I in my own context, we're not going to talk about him for most of the rest of this. But, you know, what what do you think about like his decision to like change the cart to kind of make all these provisions and like make the armor present the crescent spray painted all over the place? He's like his primary propagandist in a way. You know, I don't trust him. You Even don't trust from, Glorosti's? I don't I don't trust him even from Lysander's perspective. Interesting. Like I, okay. The the armor or the the uniforms. It is hand waved and just said, "Oh no, he the, the the actual uniforms were missing, so I commissioned these instead." And it just felt so dismissive in a way that wasn't I don't know. It it just seemed off. And I don't know where I put Glorostes in the like uh um alliance sort of chart but i don't think he's aligned entirely with um lysander i don't think he's aligned at all with darrow like there there's something fucky with him and i don't know what it is Hmm. but i am not sure i get i get a bit of a different read i think that he's entirely aligned with lysander but that any anyone else he does not give a shit about like he he cared predominantly about mercury and he cared predominantly about Heliopolis and the population, which is why he was working with Darrow, because he thought that he would preserve the population. And that was going to be the way that he could protect the most people. He was doing the right thing by his own moral standards. He then shifts in like onto almost a back foot when Lysander reappears. And he's like, oh, oh, fuck. These people that I like was revered by and loved for and like all this shit. They're back. Well, I actually care about the loons i don't care about the grimaces because they're just warlords i don't care about atalante at all but the loons always respected me so maybe i'll give that a bit more weight in particular because he's he's at the top of the societal rung so like he is the high one of the highest oranges that exists so why wouldn't he bounce right back into the arms of of the people who loved and respected him and treated him you know as highly as possible especially after he feels betrayed by the overextension of the storm gods and the damage that they wrought on mercury you know yeah does a lot but that's that's my thought no that's totally fair um why the why the caginess about the uniforms then he's not really being i don't think he's being cagey about the uniforms the right word 
but yeah. he's hand wavy about it. Well, he's he's just being like, stop fucking worrying about it, dude. Like, I have your back. And that's I think that's his kind of whole attitude about this whole thing. Like, in case you didn't realize, I just helped you execute one of the greatest like combination defeats routing of one of the biggest military leaders of all time. Like, I am firmly in your corner here's your reminder that i'm in your corner i'm so in your corner that i built you your own cart because the other one could have been sabotaged like i'm so here for you yeah i don't know and maybe maybe that is so honorific maybe that's just so much for you that that becomes an overbearing point but for me that just becomes very clear that glorostes appreciates the loons more than anything else like he did before as he wears mm-hmm. that badge of honor that he was given by Octavia forever ago, you know, like there's, there's clearly, so, clearly something there. We are in this really strange position where mm-hmm. we've been, we've had like discussions like this before where we're at odds with what each other thinks. And right now I know that what you're arguing isn't rooted in anything in the future. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I'm just arguing on <laughs> over analysis of past events. That's yeah. that's the difference is I've read this so many times. So um, but you trust yeah. him and I don't is you, you trust his uh, his external um, facade. Yeah. His face. Yeah. Perception. Yeah. Yeah. You you trust that and I don't is kind of what we're getting at. And this mm. is the first time where we've had an argument like this or I I wouldn't even call it an argument. I wouldn't call it a disagreement. We've had a conversation like this where we're at opposite ends of it. I'm not trying to figure out if you are just trying to (laughs) fuck with me or if you're genuinely at odds. Oh man. So (laughs) I've actively trying to, I've actively tried to stop fucking with you for a while now. I know. I know. But I I still think that's been a big thing since golden sun is it's like, I'm not really trying to mess with you. Um, anymore because the book does enough of that yeah, <laughs> so. i know but it, <laughs> um, that was just kind of an epiphany for me like this is yeah. the first time we've had a conversation like that where i genuinely don't We're have to worry footing, about man. that exactly like <clears throat> all i have is just more experience more page time you know like i've yeah. this is technically including the audiobook listen at this point like the fourth time through but that's because i've like triple read it this time to do all the prep so right yep yeah. yeah it's a it's definitely a whole thing so it's fun though like yeah i don't know we didn't resolve anything but it was nope. a fun conversation <laughs> fair enough so the poisoning of kelandora Kel man lysander you are so fucking naive to believe that darrow would ever stoop to using poison has he ever done something like that there's never been a moment in which he has stooped so low as to poison somebody or to go behind someone back. He's He's been honorific in combat for so long, at the very least since the Institute. In Like, maybe the one super underhanded moment was the, the dead horses, but, like, even that was still single combat for the most part. I, I don't know. Our only examples so far of poisoners, of course, are Atalantia and Apollonius. So, like, come on, dude. You don't have to look much further than the people you're around yeah so you're choosing to lie with i think um i was confused my first read through of this i was entirely like his conviction convinced you or like yeah yeah he was so he was so sure that darrow's razor was like dipped in poison or something 
like that's what he says, right? There was there was poison applied through Darrow's razor, and he was so convinced of it that I I didn't I didn't question it that much. I'm like that's fucking weird, but I I don't maybe I missed something in the battle scenes, and it, it was just odd for me. But now thinking about this again, right now as you're asking this question, we know Glorostes Glorostes. Fuck, I I did it too. Um, <laughs> he's he's out looking for an antidote, basically, because he's a genius. Has he been, and is is he, and has he been aligned with Atalante the entire time? Like, would this EMP have gone off regardless? Like, had he did he actually turn with the arrival of? Lysander, I don't Lysander? think so. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no I question. I don't think so. I don't think no, so. No, he was he was 110% in Darrow's camp. Nah, I don't. I, yeah. With this, I don't think so. Because, because he's so adamant about, I can find a cure for this. And he, that's not the his poison? bag. That's, the that's not his bag at all. He's not, not a, the, he's not a Medica. The, the poison is what made you think that? Just right now, when we're talking about it right now, like I'm just thinking about this right at this very moment, the poison and the fact that he is so sure and so like adamant on convincing Lysander that he can solve this problem makes me think that he is just there to pacify Lysander. I think it's just sheer hubris. Like the dude (sighs) has never been... Yeah, I mean that's that's just that's just he didn't my have thought. that much time to alter his like designs with the EMP. He didn't he didn't have that much time at all. He had like five days, and I that's don't, not I don't that know much that time. That dude's a genius, a and like built the biggest EMP of all time. You know, like I I don't know, man. But he was know. always such know, a dude. dick to the to the. He was a dick to the rising in general. No, but he was supporting them. Yes, he was supporting he, them, he, but he was requiring like sardines on Tuesdays. Yeah, like, he, he was just a being fucking, a dick. I don't know if it's being a dick so much as it is like being absolutely a, like it's a being a prince. dick. You can like it, there's there's a difference between like being an asshole for being an asshole's sake and like being an artist. You know what I mean? Like it literally it, said he wouldn't work if he didn't get his. Correct, because he's an artist. He's not. He's not a dick. By like, just like I won't like being a dick is like bring me this or else. Like it's it's more of a threat. You know what I mean? And like, let let me put this forward right now. Like my official statement, and hold me to this for. I will. I will shotgun a beer if I'm wrong. (laughs) Any beer of your choosing. Any beer of your choosing, as long as it can be shotgun. So it's a can. It's got to be a can. I will shotgun a beer on video or on it'll be on on the podcast if I'm wrong in this. Los dos. But I am putting forward right now. Glorostes is in Atalantia's pocket and he's playing Lysander just as he was playing Darrow. Like he had been in their pocket the entire time. And that EMP would have gone off the same way it already did. Whether or not Lysander should be. This, this is uh i've never i've never disagreed with you more on something in this podcast than this right. moment in which i'm like 
there's no way. But I will take I will take I'm your shotgun beer bed. This gauntlet. Are you are you agreeing to the same terms? I if, if will, I'm wrong or if I'm right, will you do the same? So here's my problem. It's very difficult to film me shotgunning a beer because there are two things that happen. Either I finish it or I puke uh, because okay, carbonation. So um, what about just how can I we could do... probably do an ice like I could do an ice that has a low enough I mean, carbonation well, where I can. Generally how, handle how about it. how about as quickly as possible? You chug a beer. Sure. Of my choosing. Sure, whatever. Fine. Yeah. Also we'll in it. a can. Same same constraints. You it's heard just... it here first, folks. <laughs> We're betting on <laughs> Glorosties in the future. And if this doesn't resolve, we need you to resolve it for us. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. Um, if this doesn't resolve in the next book, you guys make the judgment call on who you think is more correct. Yeah. Call us. Let us know when you've when Call you, a spade and spade and just remind me that I'm right. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> So are, are we are we limiting it to this. beer? Let, let's get into the depths of the oh my God. <laughs> of the of the wager. Strictly beer or anything canned? Um, I would say let's just stick to beer. Stick to beer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yep. obviously for yep. you, it's got to be canned. I'm going to stick to that same requirement for me. Yep. Choosing for you when you're wrong. Okay. Cool. I might be. My see. God. <laughs> all right. Uh, sorry for that. Oh, all right. Divergence. Well, yep. Um, but yeah, hmm. no, I don't fucking trust him. <sighs> um, we were talking about Calendora, and you derailed the Glorostes and the the poisoning and the solution there. Do you have any other thoughts? Who do you think poisoned Calendora? It's just. I mean, we'll put it straight up. I guess who who actually physically poisoned her? Or no, you, who who's responsible her? for the poisoning? Atlantia. Of course it's Atlantia. Okay. All right. Especially yeah. knowing that Lysander's here and knowing the history of Lysander and knowing the 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 role that Calendora played in that history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fucking killer. Get that <laughs> possibility out of out of the way. So get that thing back where it came from or so help me <laughs> put it in the void. Yeah. Please. Something, something like that. Yeah. Right. I couldn't agree more. Okay. All right. Just had to, had to clarify since we went so far off the rails on that question. I'm wondering as well, we speculated on this a while ago, but the symbols on the spines of the books, I wonder if we'll see a pyramid with the crescent on it, given Glorosti's uh, sort of penchant for putting this on everything and kind of using that design. We see in the and on Iron Gold, seeing the twelve pointed star of the Republic. We see uh, on Dark Age the grimace triangle with the skull in the center. I'm curious if we'll see the Loon Crescent or if we'll see the Rim symbol on the edge. So, um, I think if I were to guess, it'd be some sort of eye for the Oculus. That'd be my guess. But you bring up a point. You will bring up a point later on. I was reading through the notes. You will bring up a point later on about um, not uh, comparison to Morningstar. There's another. Right. Yeah. Lightbringer. Lightbringer, Lightbringer. Morningstar. Lucifer. Right. So Lightbringer with a crescent. Um, Morningstar already is a crescent on its side. Yeah. Lightbringer with a crescent 
would be very evocative of that. I don't know if it's too much so. I could see it happening. But I, I really think... I think it'll be something with Oculus. Hmm. Okay. All right. I can see that. I just feel like it'll be... It'll account for the three sides of the war. I'm I'm pro, actually, the rim symbol being there first and foremost, but with sort of the the tentative title of Lightbringer being out there, I am curious as to whether or not it'll be, you know, something else. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to bring it up. I thought that that was an interesting symbol, and I think that it accompanies kind of our, our suite of symbols that we've we've talked about previously. So, want to bring it up? Yeah, for sure. Man, every time Atlas speaks, I am on the edge of my fucking seat. When he's here in the cart with him, I oh, I I love it, but I also love to like hate him. Like he is he is a vile, but interestingly morally complex dude that I need more of like strictly i just need more atlas is so well spoken throughout this entire book but obviously here as well everything that he says has some sort of rationalization to it although like terrifying and angering and just upsetting Mm -hmm. it's so satisfying to read it you know yeah strange like strangely like I'm not rooting for him, but I love his character. <sighs> yeah, I I do also love his character. And it's like you don't wanna you don't wanna root for the dude, like you said, but like he kinda he is it's, it's a not delightful villain. Him. It's not rooting for him, but it is I am hoping that he survives long enough to like give me more of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah, kind of this, he, he's got an interesting, like, haunt about him, you know? Like, there's something inexplicable about him as a villain, and I'm so wanting of more of this. Mm-hmm. That That's what actually shocked me the most in, in this read-through, was, um, was my desire for more Atlas. Yeah, yeah. I, I missed him, especially in this, lat, like, later section this book i i wanted more because and it, he's so he's so fun to read yeah and i i love apollonius i i do actually like i'm appreciative later that we get apollonius uh, but i think that they make interesting counterpoints to each other to a degree like they're their own foils in their own way um do you know what foil means in a story i mean not antagonist but um undoing almost no a foil is a character that supports another be it directly or indirect, directly indirect might be thematically. Another might be more directly as though he's a supporting character, um, fleshes out the other character's traits. Right. So I'm going to cut that, but, um, so, you know, I, I think that he's a fantastic foil, right? Because they are in, in a lot of ways opposite. Like Apollonius is the definition of absurdity and of, uh, of like a, a grotesque appetite and Atlas, is this very reserved, conscientious, step-by-step plotting thinker? Like they, that's that's why they're foils to each other is because they are opposites, but they they are working towards very similar goals, right? Which just makes them you know fantastic. I think in a in a lot of ways. So yeah, um, yeah. I don't know what it is. I I love Atlas so much more than I love Apollonius. I don't know what it is. Like he, he seems so much more rooted and so much more, um, 
I don't want to say relatable, but realistic, I guess. Yeah. Whereas Apollonius is almost a caricature of of a villain, you know? Hmm. Um, I, that's not the right way to yeah, put it. Yeah, I right. I I understand. I'm not going to try to nitpick caricature. Um, but I I get what you're getting at, right? Like Apollonius feels he's not even archetypical, right? Because an ar- archetypical or like a a regular villain doesn't desire lust in the same way that he does after his targets or his task. Um, so like yeah. I, I get you. I, I think I get what you're digging at or pointing at, and I think we can we can expose that more when we get to Apple's section here. So but, I, I, yeah. I think I think I know where, what I want to say or sure. how, how I want to put it. Apollonius is an extraordinary villain, whereas Atlas is someone that like you could believe that he just be in society undetected he's mild mannered you know like he is strangely right especially for all the violence and like his psychological torture and everything like that like collectively he's and i say this after i read the very grotesque poem last week (laughs) um very like he's fairly mild mannered except for when he's not and then it's like whoa 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 are you holding this inside all the time or like, are you just using this as a tool for psychological manipulation? And that's really where I think some of the lines blur with, uh, with Atlas versus Apollonius. So, so I, I'm not being super like articulate in my differentiation between the two, but there is, there's a clear difference in my head about why I gravitate, gravitate towards Atlas as opposed to Apollonius in my, like, what do I want out of a villain sort of thoughts? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that kind of answers it, but sure. not, not perfectly. It's so hard to put to words. I don't know. Yeah, I am. Um, I definitely feel that. So I, I want to put out a couple of different thoughts now. Uh, we're moving on from these two. We'll, we'll get to talk about more about Apollonius and even a little bit more about Alice a bit later here. But speaking about the Lightbringer thing and kind of the battle cry of the Lightbringer being sung here, that about it's a song about Selenius and sort of the, the past of the loons and everything else. We, we briefly mentioned the Luciferian connection between Morningstar and Lightbringer and kind of the, the sort of, we didn't really talk about it, but like the fall of Lucifer is kind of a big component here right and there's an argument in my head with this being a potential placeholder title that the the morning star that fall like obviously darrow is the morning star that everyone's pointing to the tier morga and kind of everything else is as it goes forward um but rise so high and mud you lie and uh, man it's it's tough to kind of disconnect the the imagery here that those two potential titles evoke against each other. And even the song of the Lightbringer versus the like, let's just say in the next book, Lysander is referred to as the Lightbringer, and Darrow is referred to as the morning star, right? Like they're both different sides of the same Luciferian coin in their own way. Right. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's interesting, and I love that dichotomy between the two of them. I can't imagine like there are other book name options here, but Lightbringer feels like the winner. It does. Um, I wonder if it's too similar to Morningstar. 
Ah, uh, maybe not. In what way? I was going to say, the, like, not everyone's going to draw that connection. Yeah, like, that's, not, a, that's a fair yeah. point. Nobody, nobody would really immediately draw that connection without already understanding the the differences the one one other point um the one problem that i do have with the title lightbringer is that it's not two words like everything else is like iron gold is two words red rising morning star golden sun uh, dark age you know lightbringer being one word is yeah it, it's different. one word but it's it's said as two words yeah right i would agree so with that. i i don't think that's super important to like that's my one that's just my one gap train yourself to yeah um lightbringer would be good i don't know i don't know fair enough yeah Yeah. just wanted to bring that up you know we we talked about it a little bit earlier so of course lysander bestowing the rank of ducks upon roan is i think a really good thing for him as it shows that respect and honor that he's earned through loyalty to the family loon it's a nice reward for all the effort that he's put in over the years and the faith that he's placed in kind of of everyone um yeah this this for me was a a little bit i took this question kind of in a jaded way i guess like every question like most questions i guess (laughs) um is roan going to be his token lower color going forward and like no i can't be spaces look at my ducks they're usually gold but he's a gray Look how interesting I am. Look how inclusive I am. I don't, I don't, I don't trust it. That does seem very, yeah. Especially because he brought up the fact that it's usually gold in his conversation with Roan. He didn't, in his, yeah, right. He brought it up in his own head for us, but yeah, I would, yeah. Oh, was it, was that was. It was not out loud. It was not out loud. Yeah, but it was, you know, it was definitely brought up, you know, to us. Yeah. I don't know. It, it He equated the position to Aja, right? So, like, that's a big deal. Yeah, it just seems, especially based on his uh, internal thoughts about the lower colors, this seems like a way of justifying his own feelings and actions without labeling himself as a spacist. Yeah, and it's not as though he's trying to be a reformer, right? Like, he's not saying that low colors need more rights or, like, deserve more rights by any stretch. That's that's exactly what I'm saying, is that this gives him, in his mind, in in my thought, like, my, my understanding of this and my read on this is that, in his mind, this gives him kind of carte blanche ability to do whatever he wants to sort of subjugate the lower colors without that much scrutiny because one of his high ranking officials is not gold. I I think you're right. Right. I I do think that you've got that you're dialing into something that he is trying to play into maybe in the long run when he's thinking about bringing all of the Republic back into the fold with less bloodshed, you know, like Mm -hmm. he's like, I love lower colors. Look at my, Number one in command this whole time, Ron T. Flavinius, the number one gray, <laughs> um, yeah. even before he was the Ducks. But, you know, this this sort of additional title is one of honor for sure. Um, and I can't think of anyone who deserves it more, you know, like, I don't know. It's tough because like Roan is Roan is a good dude. He's just a good dude on the wrong side, which is unfortunate. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. It sucks. But what can you do? <laughs> 
it's uh, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Alice, of course, being on the cart with Lysander is an interesting moment as it lets them share a couple of intimate exchanges. But of course, it's the last one that gets me after they get off the cart. Remember, you are but mortal. The stoic classic, Memento Mori. And seemingly this time, more of a warning about Atalantia, that one of strict pride thinking about, you know, kind of the the reaction that she might have to him. You know, the assassination attempt that obviously happens. It almost comes off as like a play your cards right, as opposed to the earlier reference that happened with Darrow and Severo on the stairs at the beginning of Iron Gold during a triumph as well. Um, kind of comparing those two moments where he was like, just remember, dude, you're mortal. And he's like, I, yeah, yeah fine. Darrow was kind of shaking it off. And now Lysander, it's almost, it's almost a warning. Um, yeah. It's an interesting juxtaposition of a couple of different moments that that's happened throughout the story. Yeah. So that, that was the same term used, right? Like Severo, Correct. They both Severo did say that almost n- not exactly the same. No, he said, remember you are, but mortal. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Which is memento mori. Yeah. Translated to English. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Um, I feel like there was a time between Lysander and Atlas that something similar was said as well. And maybe, maybe it was just more stoic conversations, but I feel like we've talked about it. Like in this book, I can't remember. I I really can't remember. But um, God, it's a good it's a good parallel. Everything between Darrow and Lysander is such a good parallel to make, and it it makes for such a cool. Is is it ironic at this point? I don't think so. Just a a mirror of of Darrow's rise within the uh within the society before the fall and and Lysander's rise now there there's some really really cool imagery and uh in comparison that god i i just want to go through and reread all of it with this context <laughs> you know welcome to why people love books so much and like good stories like you're just like oh fuck i love this like i can't escape this i'm just gonna reread it forever and it's like no no you should try other things too but like also maybe reread some of your favorites so you know to to speak a little bit meta started with a very strong story so as to ensure that this continued (laughs) but you know it's Mm. uh I'm glad I'm glad it got hooks its hooks in you, you know, especially with all the additional perspective that you can now go back and reflect on. Yeah. You know, it reads it, at a certain point, it reads like dramatic irony when you read it while going back um, mm-hmm. where you'll see this and be like, oh, this is a payoff there. No, this is a payoff there. So. Right. Yeah. The whole interaction, of course, during the Via Triumphia with Atlantia is a ferocious one from giving the scar to the conversation about to be feared or loved. The tension of the whole thing is very palpable and just the scene just again to quote myself last week. Fucking wow. (laughs) Her words drip with venom equaled only by Hypatia, I think, you know, then shall we proceed with the assassination? She even says like there's just so much like dripping venom throughout anything that Atalantia says until the engagement. It's, it's just so matter of fact, like both of them know that both of them know exactly what's going on. 
to a certain extent. Like nobody's caught off guard here. Un- unlike the action scenes that we often bring up as mm-hmm. wanting to see on screen, this, this is something that I think could really be well done on screen. It could also be super cheesy and super like phoned in, but I think given the right direction, this could be a really, really powerful grand scene. I would, uh, I would totally agree. I think it could be a very, this is a fantastic interpersonal moment to be shared at the top of these tri- the triumph in front of everyone. You can imagine it in a very like gladiator esque context, and it's very visual. I I agree with you there for sure. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the proposal, right? Like Jesus fucking Christ! Like we went from to catch a predator to cougar snatcher real fast with Lysander. I think. Uh, <laughs> I think this really just shows that he's only going to be happy if he's in some sort of predatory relationship. <laughs> it uh it doesn't matter if he's the the predator or the prey i guess boy so <laughs> oh no um, yeah. i would say our boy but fuck that <laughs> he's not our boy anymore man you remember when i like was having a tough time defending him during those sections where i was like yep nope you're right like the, she's underage for sure <laughs> it's like I, this whole time in the back of my head i was like yeah lysander fucking sucks dude like <laughs> That doesn't change that. No, but it also changed. Like I had to kind of like morally defend him to some degree. And I was like, I don't agree with that at all. <laughs> but like the golds are more emotionally mature earlier on. I no, remember making that argument yourself. like two or three times. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, man, different society. It could be different. I don't know. But I was like, well, and obviously it is different. So maybe that's also not fair. But still like, oh, boy. Oh, boy. And then after the proposal, he goes to a party. Atlas gets super drunk because he kind of knows what's going on. He escapes his assassination and then he fucks his foster mother's sister. Wow. 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 Foster-ish mother, I guess. But like basically aunt. I fuck like what? I mean, getting getting rid of the actual like legal definitions of all the all the comparisons. He basically cucks his cousin with his aunt, right? Like, right. It's not his cousin. Right. It's not his aunt. But they're basically, like, that's effectively what they are to him. Yeah, it's it's yeah. upsetting. It Regardless, doesn't get better. It's going to be a real fun family reunion, you know? <laughs> like, shit's going down. Oh, man. Oh, uh, <laughs> I can only imagine what the Christmas card looks like, right? Like, it's got to be a lot of fun. Ajax just sitting there in the corner. Like, I'm I not think getting he, any he's anymore. He's got to be, like, like, in the background behind a couple bushes, like, looking out at them getting with their daggers. picture taken. And it's yeah. not even, like, a stage photo. He's actually trying to kill Lysander. It's like, this is his vulnerable, mom- vulnerable moment when he's not wearing anything else. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, yeah I... What's what sucks? Like, well, I think actually it does suck. Um, you know, like books can be can be and should be sexual in their own rights. But the fact that the like one real like not even real, it's like a page page half page of like sex scene in quotes that we get is with Atalantia here is kind of 
Mm. Kind of upsetting <laughs> in a lot of ways. Like he's he's fucking her between like a portrait of the family and like a starport with like the snake around her neck. Like there's a whole lot of fucking shit going on here. It, it, it jumps I, off with something to the effect of she takes me in her mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, oh man. And like, okay. I'm totally fine, fine with Pierce Brown hey, including okay. sex scenes, but why is this one the first sex scene we get <laughs> of the whole series? Like, why is this? Why, why is this the moment? Here? Why? Why here? Why now? I guess why it can only get better. <laughs> like, but I don't know if that's true. Why would you curse us like that, Grossland? <laughs> I hope it gets better. Um, but fair point. Yeah, I just, I I was a little bit soul crushed. I was like, oh man, fuck, really? Like, I get this, it's it's good description, it's well done enough to, like, be subtle and, like, not overbearing, and, you know, we're not, we're not treading into, like, a romance novel territory, there's nothing wrong with that, but, like, combination sci-fi and everything else, you can add a little bit more, you can, you can touch on this, as long as it's, you know, occasional, and do it as you will. Obviously, authors choose as you will, love it, how it's played in uh, the, the um, Greenbone saga, but... This just hurt because <laughs> it was Atlantia <laughs> and Lysander, and I'm, I'm just continually upset about it. I, yeah. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, Angry. I'm with you. Boy. I'm completely with you. Fuck. All right. So he fucks his aunt, but not really his aunt. Like, kind of. So then we move into chapter 90, Lysander, his other aunt. I mean, the love knight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's a joke, but not really. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's it doesn't get same. better. It only gets different. Like Sandra's pining after older women in his life that were it completely undermines to it, him in childhood. It completely undermines the idea that yeah, this is fucked up, but I'm doing it for a cause. Because if he had the choice, he'd go for for Calendora. <laughs> Well, and I, I and think that's that there's not, an argument that he he thinks that he might have had a choice if he would have gone there immediately, but yeah, it's still fine. Uh, so the the shitty part about this, of course, is that like Calendora only meant the best for Lysander, and yet he ends up with the worst of the two near aunts. You know, the the one he loves is sitting here dying on the bed, and the one that he kind of loathes is the one that he's actually sleeping with in bed. Um, every night but it's it's very poetic in a way that the men in the series continue to make you know a couple of couple of false choices in in this sort of fashion yeah yeah i suppose so um no no matter what i think this is all atalantia pulling the strings though you know like yeah i i think she's also capable of convincing herself that she would love him you know as she's like saying it and she's also saying that not only to convince him, but to convince her because, you know, she thinks the word holds all the weight. But yeah, yeah, I feel that. I understand that. So chapter 90, Lysander, the love knight. Does this chapter hurt? Calendora, the other aunt, only meant the best of light for Lysander. And yet he ends up with the worst of his two near aunts, one that he loves and the other one that he kind of loathes. I, it's very poetic for him in a way that the men in this series continue to make these sort of false 
choices in in relationships and otherwise and i don't mean all the men of course i think that darrow ended up correct and i think that severo did but most of our other characters cassius otherwise make these horrific relationship missteps um but what what do you make of uh, of kind of the the calendora situation i mean we are kind of expected i i, I feel like i feel like mm-hmm. i was expected to hope for Lysander and Calendora to like end up on top somehow. Mm-hmm. And that still would have been fucking weird, you know? Yeah, for sure. Like, and I, I, I don't know if expected was the right way to put that, but like that seemed to be emotionally the way I was being pulled. Like, no, think about this. This could have been how it ended. And even that's fucking weird. So I don't know. I don't know where yeah. to lie on all of this. It's it's tough to say, right? Because like you want it, you kind of in the back of your head throughout all of this are like regretting Lysander's choices for him because if you would have, you know, Kalendor was here for him throughout the series. It's still it's still obviously messed up, but at the very least, she's honest, and that's kind of the thing at the end of the day. You know, even though like she was. She is older than him by a margin, and in kind of everything else that's going on, it she's still of the pair of options of on neurons. She's the more honest one. She's the more open one. You know, it's, I don't know. All of that makes it feel better. And it's not as though they're blood related. So obviously it's okay that way, but it's just, I don't know. You, you could feel like a better world would have came from a Calendora Lysander relationship than a Lysander Atalantia relationship will ever birth. Yeah, for sure. That's true. Yeah. Um, the one problem is that, that, that assumes that Atalantia doesn't exist. Cause I think, well, or that I think we're in a position where we're in a better world because Lysander did go with Atalantia is my like guess. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's fair. I guess the, the step is the step between the two to some degree is, is that, was there a way to maybe depose Atalantia and protect Kalandora? I think the answer is probably firmly no, because Atalantia is so good at 40 chess, you know, like she clearly uh, it's not clear, but we should maybe talk about it now. So the gauntlets that she looks at that are on her bedside after she mentions that she was poisoned and is dying after she's talking about Atalantia seems to indicate that she believes that Atalantia poisoned her via the armor that she's wearing. Right. Yes, so, that's the read I got off of it, too. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you would have had to play this these cards so far in advance to have figured out that issue that I don't, I don't see that being likely or coming. So, but that falls into the same category of my thought on Glorostes and trying to find a an antidote to this poison. Mm. I don't think it's likely. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it makes sense to commit any sort of time to that. Okay. To the, the dragon in Gilrostes again, opens up like a whole can of worms because I, I don't think that he would ever, he's never shown anything against Alex or not Alexander, excuse me. Alexander is dead, uh, because of Lysander, but he's never shown anything against Lysander, right? He's always been positive and he was supporting the rising before actively. He, gave darrow the storm gods he made them function yes. uh, so he was for the protection of mercury but 
I think I my my assumption in that thinking about that. Sorry, mm-hmm. we're getting into the same conversation again. But I think Atlantia is okay with sacrificing Mercury as a means of duping Darrow. But it also would have killed. It would have killed everyone. It would have killed Lysander, Gilrostes, literally everyone on the ground. Atlas, um, after he was captured, of course. I don't but, think she cares. I, I yeah, but that's a I don't think she gives a move. shit about that. If it kills Darrow, then fucking. It, but they were going to be it ready to matter. move it almost at the same time as the the biological weapon was going to be deployed. So I I don't know if like I under I understand where you're coming from for sure, and this becomes a measure of. Do we know when things could have happened with the weapons against each other? Like, could the EMP have gone off so the Darrow could have escaped with the forces before Atalantia's biological weapon struck? Don't know. We don't have that strict answer. Right. Um, but I do understand your point, though. Just kill them all. Yeah. But that's uh, ultimately Gil Rostis and Atlas and Lysander, Gil-Rostis. arguably, were all fighting. Lysander is probably fighting for his own life more than anyone else, but Atlas and Gil Glorostes, at the very least, were fighting <laughs> for the lives of Mercurians, right? Like they were fighting for Mercury. Yeah, they were. thank you for yeah. uh, criticizing my correction. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> I realized it, but yeah, I like having moral superiority on the name of this. Yeah, dude fuck me, right? After like <laughs> being adamant and confident about how wrong I was. Fair point. But but do you see what I'm saying? Like it it makes sense for Glorostes to bend back because he wants to survive himself, and he also wants the people of you know he cares about the people because without people, art doesn't matter, and that's like his perspective. Yeah, that's fair. That's pretty true. Uh, that's we, literally we talked the, about this before, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's it's the parable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So at the very least, supporting people. Anyway, rounding back to the conversation, though, um, like, I think he is, I think Gil Rostis is actively working to try to solve this problem, but he's just not skilled enough. It's not his skill set, which is why he can't do it. And that's why Lysander points it out, and he's like, well, I'm a fucking genius. At the very least, I'm going to try. Like, so. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's good enough, um, but I don't think he's in Adelantia's pocket, but... Regardless, she's poisoned and she's going to die, which is unfortunate. Um, but she also reflects on Ajax's likelihood of seeking vengeance, you know, against Lysander, which, as we've seen, is likely going to happen because <laughs> he's getting drunk to tolerate the whole thing, you know, lover scorned and everything else. I, I think this whole perspective is correct as well as she recounts the uh, Icarian parable, right? Love may give one wings, but everything burns when it flies too close to the sun. And I think that that is exactly what Ajax is experiencing is he is now on the other side of this where it's like, well, we publicly can't admit that we were fucking each other because you are my aunt and you're trying to be the sovereign. And that's a little weird because you don't have enough power to just say that this is happening. So, um, uh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have been trying pretty desperately to figure out if there's any sort of actual connection between Darrow's call sign in Morningstar mm-hmm. and uh, in this moment, or if it's just kind of fitting to use Icarus in both cases. Like, I'm trying to draw a parallel because clearly both are being, both are not even like um, 
underhandedly. They are explicitly calling Icarus in the, in these moments. And I, I want some sort of connection. I don't know if it exists. I don't think it yeah. does. I mean, it just ap- is applicable to both, but. I certainly understand. Um, and it, you know, uh, to to disconnect a little bit, it's in Golden Sun. It's this call signed up Morningstar, but that is it. Really Golden Sun, okay. Yeah, it's I Golden was, Sun, I wasn't but it doesn't. Again, but. that doesn't make a difference. Um, you know, you could also extract this a little bit and think about Darrow's case of love in in the abstract a little bit more, and um, think about the fact that like he's kind of failed his family in a, in its own way in the sort of immediacy of his parentage. Not that he's failed his family in terms of what he's striving for, which is long term their freedom, their survival and things like that, but is also maybe flying too close to the sun because he can't be both the dad that he wants to be and the warlord. So yeah, I mean, I think it fits. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Okay. Ajax though, angry leopard, Mm. (laughs) angry, angry leopard boy, mad cat, mad cat who, but not like the fireworks, man, the, the relationship here that develops between the two of them and sort of the brutal honesty that flows from Calendoria about Octavia is fantastic. I think she alludes that Atalantia potentially plotted to kill her as well. And, you know, like we said, the gauntlets and, and components like that. But that Lysander was her missing piece of the puzzle, which is why she probably decided to kill her. So I, you know, part parts of me question different components, right? Is it? that he would die and be a martyr for her or is it that his he or was she like ultimately aiming at a relationship between the two of them to like unite the power i think i'm leaning towards the first answer not the second i think it kind of straddles both i think that lysander lysander's existence allows for her to move forward in a lot of different arenas um that she wouldn't be able to otherwise i i don't i don't think it's entirely as black and white as positive or negative lysander i think it's more lysander exists and is tied to me so i can i have access to these additional resources if that makes sense so it, it i don't know i don't know does that does that fall into in line with those sort of answers in any sort of way? I think it does enough. She's going where, to use him effectively is what I'm saying. Yeah. As effectively as possible. Right. Like that's the end end all be all. But I, I think that the poisoning of a Calendora points us more towards her leaning into the idea that she was aiming towards the relationship than she was assassinating him regardless. And that she believes yeah. even at that moment that she's still in power via the triumphia. So yeah. Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Entirely. Okay. I'm with you. All right. And then the truth about the death of Lysander's family comes out, which is a big thing that's been lingering on us for a while now, Octavia killed her own daughter and a son of Arcos, uh, Brutus, our Arcos, as we know, 
And they died at the direct hands of Kalendor and Atalantia, Lysander's two love-strunk auntie types. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there's something to say there about the regret that they feel about the actions they executed, right? Kalendora feels the guilt that she has to tell, and Atalantia doesn't, right? She, you know, they're, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And Octavia, the schemer she is, is just fucking gnarly, right? This whole This whole situation is gnarly how'd you feel about the whole thing um so the fact that all of this affection is potentially like potentially driven by guilt Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe it's not anymore but that's it was yeah makes this relationship even more fucked up and complicated and hard to like really suss out the intentions of anybody here this makes it so fucking weird to dissect and I don't know where to go from like from here with it, you know? For sure. Yeah. It's um oh, it's definitely not easy, right? Like it's it's a tough conversation especially when you throw in the pandemonium chair, you know? Like and and all the missing points of memory. Yeah. Yeah, that's um I figured early on that there was something really kind of fucky with his memory, with like his mom kind of being missing. And I attributed it to the mind's eye training. Uh Uh-huh. There, there's kind of the, the mention that the mind's eye has to be broken into you. Mm Mm-hmm. And I assumed that was all physical breaking, but I'm wondering now if it's, just as equally emotional breaking that you have to be emotionally broken into this. Uh-huh. And instead of being crippled by trauma, kind of, Octavia decided to go through with this as a means of building a disciple or a um a protege, if you will. I I think both of those are great descriptors for what Lysander is, dis- disciple or protege. Yeah, I, I kind yeah. of both. Um, right. And if, like, I, I'm wondering specifically if killing his parents was necessary in order to get him to move forward in their training and okay. removing their memory from him was important in getting him to not be a crippled shell of a person and actually take those lessons and move forward with them. If yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Like that, totally makes sense. That's to me. kind of the, the thought process I'm going in with this. Like it wasn't that there was anything that his parents did to piss off Octavia. It's that she saw potential in him. Mm-hmm. And in order to unlock that, she needed some emotional trauma. Huh? interesting i don't know if it's so much like she needed to unlock some emotional trauma wait are you saying calendar or octavia needed to octavia needed to unlock or needed to expose lysander to trauma emotional trauma in order both to, physical okay. and emotional but the emotional trauma would have been crippling to the point where she wouldn't have been able to go forward with her lessons if not for deleting the memory of his parents. Interesting. I feel like it's more of a fixation because I think especially, 
you know, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And again, we're, we're at a point of mostly conjecture. Um, but for me, the way that I, I read this is I, I think more about um, the sort of things that Anastasia stood for, which as a reformer, she's closer to Virginian opinions, believing that lower colors should have rights and, and things of that nature. And that there was the coup being planned by Rivas, of whom also we know that the Raws kind of align with you know, maybe not full reformer values, but at the very least, they have a better approach, I, I would say, um, mm-hmm. than the core core golds do. So those those kind of factors together made sense for her to assassinate them, uh, Brutus and Anastasia. And then she chooses to, you know, remove the memory because she wants Lysander to only remember these moments and not question any of his ideals or beliefs that he has that she's instilled in him. Um, right. And I think that the mind's eye though, to your point though, is fuse is physical and emotional battery. But I, I don't know if, if, um, or at the very least the way that Octavia instilled it was physical and emotional battery, but I don't know if that's the end all be all for, you know, how it, how it happens or how it comes about. Right. But, okay. Yeah. It's tough, but yeah. I don't feel like it was necessary. I feel like the Anastasia removal was more to ensure that she that that Lysander was a good little zealot, which is why I liked your your kind of terminology with him being indoctrinated in here. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's where I feel with that for sure. Understood. Yeah. Oh, man. A horrendous time, though. Like we've we've like heard these memories. We've been talking about it since Iron Gold with the piano and everything else and fucking um Oh God! What's the old raw lady's name? Not Dido, not Diomedes, of course, not Serafina. Um, the grandma, Grandma Raw. Ah, oh, it'll come to me in fuck. a bit, but it, it's gonna come to me too. I have no idea. Yeah, but like when she she was clearly triggering it because she knew where Revis stood, you know, where like her husband stood, and so it it feels as though it's one of those things where she knew exactly what she was playing at in those moments and exactly what she was trying to unlock in him. Um, mm. and yet Lysander chose wrong cause he's a fuck, but here we are. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, of course he was. So he's a fuck. we, we leave this very sad moment with Kalandora as she dies, kind of imparting this love and Lysander realizing that this love of his life in quotes, he's a 20 year old, a died. <laughs> died died here this this aunt love of his life died here um love and it's i mean it's it is let's not try to completely downplay the sadness it is sad compared to his current predicament right that he's in um he definitely had a a strictly better option Um, but so i i just have to i have to bring this up because we've talked about ant youtube (laughs) (laughs) is that different than aunt youtube well I mean, yes, it is, but there is a great subsection of the English-speaking populace that the term aunt for us is pronounced ant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sign-off for Ants Canada is, it's ant love forever. And I just, I feel like it's appropriate here. It's very appropriate, I think. Yep. It's upsetting in every way. Like, let's not <laughs> let's not try to downplay that at all. I'm angry about it. 
Uh, so Lysander leaves this and <laughs> Calendora dies. Atalantia potentially being one of the last people to talk to her, of course, um, after this whole thing. And they kind of smile and they go through the rest of their day. And he he arrives back and they, they go to the chamber and she's crying because she's upset at the death of Calendora, of which we can assume is fake. You know, it's I fake. assume it's fake. And she like they have sex again. And when in quotes, when she is done with me, she turns over to sleep and I lie there staring at the ceiling, feeling dead inside. And, you know, I feel a very abrupt shift here for Lysander, of course, because he's he's found out the death of his parents. He's found out how he's been manipulated by his grandma, of whom he's adored over the course of the last two books. Um He's kind of seeing his like na- naivete shoved in his face, and it kind of feels like his motivations might be shifting or changing a little bit here to some degree. You know, like I don't know if I agree with that entirely. Sure. I think his motivations have stayed the same. It's just the emotional taxing nature nature of putting on a face and consoling somebody like Atalantia, even falsely so, false in a couple senses. Falsely feeling uh, like you need to console them and then consoling them for false feelings. Like it's just draining and upsetting and he's going through the motions of something he absolutely doesn't want to do. And he's laying Uh there feeling like, is this even fucking worth it? That's kind of where I'm at with, with my read on this scenario. Not that they both know that this is all bullshit, but there's bullshit about. <sighs> yes, bullshit abound for sure. You know, I, and I'm not, I'm not strictly disagreeing with you in in concept either. Um, it, it's not as though you're right. It's not as though his motivations have changed. It's that his leverage has changed. Before he That's was willing true. to kind of play the part of of pet to some degree. Um, to try to execute this glorious societal goal. But now, now that he knows the truth of, of what happened during his upbringing, he's like, absolutely fucking not. Um, and even, even in death, he kind of rejects Calendora for, for similar reasons. So here he is the limp body on the bed, basically going through the motions and, Oh, Oh my God. Yeah. There's just, it fucking sucks. Like this for yeah, Lysander blows. <laughs> um, can you imagine like he's been misled for so long and been beaten down with all these truths and facts and whatever. And he's been lied to his entire fucking life. So like a little bit of sympathy there, but you know, it's got to change more than that for me yeah. to you know come back around. So I don't know. It's hard to, yeah. Hard to come back from that. Hard to come back from the strict spacism. So fucking exactly. referring to a 20 year old as a child soldier and, calling darrow a slave because he won't answer you when he called his name yeah it's pretty fucked offensive so with that chapter 91 virginia salvation or vengeance and finally after a long break we have a moment back with virginia before the end of the story we finally get details on what fuzzly happened with cassius he was spared by diomedes secluded to europa and then broke out to return I I still don't know if I trust it, man. Yeah. The fuzzy details at best, or the details being fuzzy at best, it makes me really not trust him. I don't know. There's not another book. 
there's not another book that can like console me right now into thinking that, yeah, this is a completely above the board thing because there's never been a, an above the board hidden agenda in this book. It's always been subterfuge, always been hidden motives. There's always been just bullshit. And I don't understand why I'm expected to trust Cassius in this sentence, like in, in this moment here, you know? Whoa, that's not the turn that I expected here. You're expecting Cassius to be an asshole? I, I mean, I'm at least not expecting him to be just straight up on board with the rising. I don't think hmm. he's going to be a turncoat for the society, but I think he's going to be out for vengeance for Darrow. I, I th- okay. To to that point, I think at the end of the day, he's pro Darrow, you know, regardless. I don't know. Um, I don't know. There, there's just, there's something fishy he, about he the even sentence, talked- the, 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 what was the actual quote? Um, the details of his 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 escape were fuzzy at best. Like the, there's something fishy there, and I don't know what to make of it. I think you're reading into the wrong fishy, if that makes sense. Like in my opinion, I think that you're reading into the wrong fishy. I think the wrong fishy is assuming that he broke out and the Diomedes didn't like let him go or like planned to let him go. I, I think absolutely that's the think quote that's fishy true. part. Yes. So I think that's the quote fishy or fuzzy part of the whole thing. I don't think that it's a because I Diomedes is the most honorable man we've met in this series in a long fucking time. That's a good point. Um, And I I can't imagine him not going the honorable path and like saying, okay, this is a moment in which I don't trust Atalantia anymore. And so I'm going to call for this release to some loyal guards of whom will do this. And so like he escapes, but he, he blames on this fuzzy details because he doesn't want to sell out Diomedes's position in case it makes it back. You know, like I, I see those kind of things. I can see that. I don't see Cassius being a negative force here because he's literally saving Darrow's life. If he's on the side of the rim, if he's on the side of the the society, why would he have picked up Darrow and saved him? That makes no sense. Darrow was trapped. Darrow was toast. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. With that, I don't have an answer. Like, I don't have a comeback. Save him so they could die on Mars. That's a very good point. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. Let it be known, though, that I don't entirely trust him. Hmm. Okay. I think I've never trusted Cassius more <laughs> incomplete <laughs> counter because he like literally is saving Darrow from a death situation. This is this should be, by all accounts, the end of Darrow. Everybody's assuming it's the death of Darrow. Yeah. Yeah. So by all accounts, he's being saved by his old best friend and by someone that we assumed was dead. So it's like it's it's a combination of things where it's just this to suddenly become a betrayal. It, it feels very much um Firefly dinosaurs on a ship mashing them against each other and saying, curse you for my inevitable betrayal, you know, as curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the proper quote. Oh, man. But man, this chapter feels like preparation for the next war, doesn't it? (laughs) And it feels like it's also going to be fought by our two lead women, Virginia and Victra. No. Yeah. The V sisters, man. God, if that ever gets coined as a term within this universe i am going to like burn this entire series <laughs> like, i'm going to take all of the books and make a nice very warm bonfire please don't call them the v sisters pierce 
And you have to add Volga to that mix as well if you're going to oh, go with the fuck. Venus sisters. Oh, fuck. Shit. <laughs> 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 now yeah. it's going to happen. Because you said that and you pointed that out, that's going to happen. And I'm going to have to it, like go and burn all of the books. Fuck. It is like a superhero name point at that point. You know, superhero yeah. team name. I, yeah. I, I, uh, I feel that for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels very clear, you know, to me thinking about the next book and everything else um it feels very clear that i i'm also very excited to see uh virginia and victra lead a front line you know to to varying degrees and see them be in the thick of combat because i feel like that's that's kind of where we're headed um until mm-hmm. darrow comes back up to snuff and maybe we save severo it it feels like that's they're going to be the they're going to be the warriors which i'm super excited for yeah no, I'm I'm super down for that. Do you think we'd see Victra's point of view at that point? Or would we you see know, it all through Virginia? I want Victra's point of view. I want I I think I really do. I think I really want Victra's point of view. Yep. Mm. I'm gonna stand by that. Yeah, I pr- kind of I'd your, appreciate your it. I'd appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I just, think all that you gain from Victor's point of view is especially like, does she care about the Republic as much as she appears to, or does she care about vengeance and like the well being of man more like what's, what's Victor's end game. Yeah. Which right now it's vengeance on, on a large scale, but I'm, I'm okay curious as to vengeance. what her political end game is. Yeah. So no, I, I think it would be a good ad. It's not perfectly necessary, but I, I would support a Victor POV. I think Volga is like an, a must have and a, a Victor would be a nice to have if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. I think um I think if we can only add one point of view, it's Volga. Yeah, right. Victra's a possibility. I just I don't think we need it. I would also kill for a Diomedes pers- point of view. That's but... fu- that'd be fucking sweet. <laughs> All right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's where my that'd brain be goes. I'm like sweet. if if I have a wish list. <laughs> It's yeah. right up there. I don't think that I want to be inside of Atlas's head because I think it'd be very melancholy for the most part. Um, but and it would be way too complex. It'd be too much 4D chess. It'd be too much thinking as opposed to act, action. But um, I appreciate him as a character nonetheless. Yeah, I'm with yeah. you. Anyway, Diomedes, though, for sure. Like, I'm I'm in on that. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, Virginia and Holiday have this conversation about what Mars means to them. Virginia asks, what does Mars mean to you, Nakamura? And she says, after a pause, hope and you, my liege. And Virginia replies, war. And to me, that gives me shivers every time that I read it, because Mars, A, of course, is the god of war. But so we really obviously shouldn't be shocked. But on top of that, she's been reflecting about the way that like Mars has caused her a fuck ton of pain. This planet isn't. It, it's more than that. It's it, it is a source of pain profoundly throughout her life, but it's also a source of joy. And so like she sees Mars as this place of war. It's the birth, birthplace of Darrow. It's the birthplace of her family. It's, it's the fall of her family. It's the iron rain. It's the death of her father. It, it's all these different things. It's so complex, um, but it is at its core war. Yeah. Um, pairing this with like, that sort of sacred word heart vault that she talks about in this section. Yeah. That gets broken into and shat upon mm-hmm. with uh, home being one of the, one of the few words in it. It really makes me curious about her view of Mars. 
And mm-hmm. is has this always been her view of Mars, or has it been entirely corrupted by past events, recent events? And would she have viewed Mars as home or hope or anything other anything else positive without that sort of experience? Or has she always viewed Mars as war? I I think that it's a more recent change. I would argue in the last like 12 years, right? Like not dating back to like the death of her mom, but I think that's maybe a starting point, you know, for this being kind of a, a place of conflict in her life. And then the Institute and, you know, losing a brother to another brother and uh, all of the different conflicts that have happened. So, I mean, I understand her opinion of it being war. It's just, uh, oof, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's difficult to particularly point the finger at. But I feel like it it does start post Darrow. Like that's when we really come into this. Yeah, I'm with you. I think so. But man, Cavax, that adopted father, oh man, I can't imagine how much he hurts after Daxo's death. It just it just sucks. I love the the family Telemannus's literal family tree as it's described. But it's it's a profound pain here, man. As he says, it it is a tragedy to see any man sacrifice his nature for his vocation, much less a man I love so much. She, he, I mean, obviously Virginia. Sorry, um, but it just it stings in all the ways with Cavax because it, he is he is sacrificing in every turn, and you know, by God. I, I it just it hurts. I, I hurt for him more than I heard for most of the other characters in the series. Yeah. Yeah. I this one. This is another one of those points that really, really hurt for me. I love their memorial tradition. Mm-hmm. And there there's something to be said about the Telemannuses. And their their pride and strength, but also sort of their caringness and their tenderness. How well for lack of a better term, rooted they are in reality and in society and in their own actions, that this sort of ceremony and uh, the, the planting of a tree in their name is so fitting for me. And I, I, I can't, I've been trying to figure out a way to elaborate on that more, and I can't. I I, I can't think of a the right way to put it, but it's it's a strong thought and emotion for me thinking about that and their their connections. So I don't know. Yeah, I hmm. I really appreciate that view on the legacy of Telmanis, and I, I think it's Telmanis. I think it's really difficult to to pick it apart, right? Because it is it is so meaningful. It's very powerful, and you know, I said family tree, but it's more like a family forest. And there's just there's something there to the whole thing, and it's it's great. I mean, it's fantastic. It's um, ritualistic again if we're talking about the the deaths of families we're comparing you know we can compare the julii to the romulus to the to the telemannus and each of them faced very different things and julii is one of one of endurance and you know romulus again the the Ra's is one of pride and endurance and 
the the death of Antelamanus is a very sort of serene experience, I think, in a very different way to the other two. I think that it's more of an acceptance of the end rather than an understanding of what death is. And that, to me, I think is a lot. It's it's more profound. It also speaks to Cavex's nature and the family's nature on the whole. And I, ugh, man. Yeah. Ugh. Hearts. It hurts. Yeah. It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. I can't help it. It hurts. My mm-hmm. back. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So they, they run the Iron Circle, and man, what a moment that is. What a fantastic, uplifting moment to have here after all of this defeat. Mars endures and is still on Virginia's side, still on the Sovereign's side after all of this hell. After they lost a continent, after it's been partially burned. It's just, it's such a fantastic winning moment for the group. Mm-hmm. This moment entirely changes the meaning of the Iron Circle from, oh, what does she say? Look how big my cock is. <laughs> to right. uh, almost as meaningful or as meaningful as a triumph. Like It's essentially a triumph. Yeah, right. Um, I love the scene. I love I loved everything about it. And um, yet again, this is something that's going to look amazing on screen, whatever that gets adapted. This is going to look super fucking cool. I could not agree more. This is a fantastic example of a great app that you can you can give a lot of visual representation to and make it feel really emotionally punchy. You know, like this is this is your season finale in a way, right? Like this yeah. is. This could yeah. be a crazy moment between the pointy. I, I honestly, I would switch these two chapters. I'd switch the graveyard of tyrants and uh, in this moment. Uh, but you know, mm-hmm. but that way, yeah, I mean, no, no, positive they're parallel moment. anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and of course, you know, to top that off, we we reunite with Pax, and it's a bittersweet moment. But Kavak stepping in and sweeping him up is is kind of something else. After she's not able to embrace him because she has to hold up her appearances, but it's it's. It's great. You know, like the whole thing. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, not only is it bittersweet, but it also brings uh, kind of a point we've been discussing for a long time. It's mostly with Darrow, but more and more often with Mustang is uh, kind of the separation of their personalities mm-hmm. um, into different beings altogether. She says... And I quote, the mother must wait her turn. Like that That's, I mean, that that's why it's bittersweet because she is not, I guess it can be said, she's not allowing herself to be emotional right now. But the way we've been framing it, the sovereign is not Pax's mother. Right, right. So she. Which is he, what she has to is, be. Right. And he still has a relationship with the sovereign but it's not the same as his relationship with his mother. So she has to wait her turn in that she's not allowing herself to be emotional in this sense. in like in, in this instant, I don't know. It, it's bittersweet's the right way to put it because it is depressing. It brings up kind of the question of, are these the same person or are they separate people? Yeah, and again, I think that the only like firm delineation 
like really firm delineation that I have in my mind is is Darrow and the Reaper. Um, but also the responsibility of the sovereign is separate from the responsibility of motherhood, which I think is a different thing. I think Darrow kind of, yeah, maybe he conflates the two. Maybe he doesn't. But, you know, like it's it's a thing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to fully, you know, firmly stand on either side of the line. But yeah, I, I, I think there's there has to be a clear delineation between the two, because otherwise she would be conflicted in this moment. Yeah, right. Right. She she just understands wholeheartedly that right now I am the sovereign. I cannot break I must to celebrate the part. with my son. Yeah, right. I need to do what needs to be done, and later the mother will get to celebrate. So yeah, I, I I don't think it's conf- conflict at all. I think it's a I perfect think, delineation, though. Yeah. Like you said, it's a perfect yeah. delineation. Yeah, good point. Great point. Then we move into a, a section with with harmony, right? And and Pax passing passes Trig's engagement ring for Ephraim, you know, the ring that they exchanged. And the knowledge of his de- demise hurts me and hurts Holiday terrifically. Because I, I think the two of them really never got to make up after the argument that happens all the way back in Iron Gold when they see each other last at the end of the the end of the book. Um, they sort of disown each other in their own ways. And that sucks, especially how much we know Ephraim grew and how much we know that like Ephraim and Pax meant, meant to each other. And kind of the, the whole situation, the death yeah. of Ephraim hurts. Yeah, it does. It's a serious consequence of this book. This... This loose end between Holiday and Ephraim is, I, I mentioned earlier that there are very few times in this entire series that I got like emotional. And I, I think I also mentioned in addition to the sort of swimming, there was another one in this section. This is that. Yeah. Strange. Like I, I didn't expect this. If I were to like, casually look through sort of um the cliff cliff notes of this book this wouldn't strike me as something that would would grip me but it did it really did like i i don't understand why but this was a very emotional part for me i i think it's horrifying you know like it it sucks so much it reminds me of of sort of the general picture of um of wives or husbands that are are greeted with like a casket or a flag back home and it's very reminiscent of those kind of moments and i think that's why it stings so much but on top of that you tag in the fact that like they weren't able to make up and the last interaction they have had was largely negative but ephraim held up his side of the deal and they just never got to you know come back to a moment in which they were really together and agreed on something again because they had kind of broken up broken up as like a family through trig at the beginning of iron gold and then this whole like i love especially in a reread this is so brilliantly written i love ephraim's journey and i love the way that it ends because he goes from a very jaded person to a welcoming loving and accepting person after he kind of figures out his own sobriety and his own limits and and things like that and it it's 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 very important and critical to the character for him to have dealt with that. And I just, 
Oof, man, yeah. Ephraim hits different in in additional <laughs> rereads, and especially man in this book, I yeah. I miss the dude. I'm I'm already very upset about what the next book looks like because it's not going to have Ephraim in it. You because don't know I that. I liked Ephraim so much, but you don't know. No, I'm I'm pretty <laughs> confident that Ephraim's dead. <laughs> I'm fairly certain, actually. Yeah. Um, I know, I'm but I do hope that. that at the end of the series we get some. I'm sure we'll get some ring back to to Ephraim when things end positively i hope question mark <laughs> either volga or lyria or someone will be carrying that fire and i think it's the reality right like he inspired fire in other people now like pax electra uh, volga and lyria all carry that fire in different degrees and i think someone at the very least pax of who i believe will survive the series will you know carry that fire forward so uh man F, I miss you so dearly. Fuck. Mm-hmm. It sucks. So, we also learn during this conversation that Pax, by way of the Oculus, seems to have sent Lyria off for repairs. We kind of had alluded to that before, but we get a more strict, you know, note here. Yeah. So, we know that there is some sort of connection between Quicksilver and Figment and Glorostes, but we don't know what their actual, like, connection is, right? Correct. That's for the basically most part. all they, we know. Like, as far as I, I can say, understand. Well, the one thing that I would add is that we know that Glorostes was commissioned Glorostes. to build the... Glorostes, excuse me, was commissioned to build the Oculus. That we right. can't ignore that, right? Like, right, th- that's why I brought him By up. Quicksilver, okay. Just yeah, want to make by, sure. By Quicksilver. So we, we know yep. Quicksilver... Lurastis, Figment, they are tied together in some way, whether it's all three together in the center or if it's Figment is tied to, if if Quicksilver is kind of an intermediary between Figment and Lurastis, like, or if they're all in, I don't, I, I don't fucking know. I just know that there is some sort of connection between the three of them. And I'm very, very, like, curious how that all works. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big curiosity going into the next book because we don't get answers. So that's where we're going to leave Figment. (laughs) (sighs) So as Virginia approaches Victra a little bit later while she's training, Victra is fucking angry, dude. And it's it's definitely understandable. She's had so much stolen from her over the course of this book, over the course of this second trilogy, stripped from her that you can hardly blame her for wanting to go off and kill every last one of those motherfuckers who stole her family from her, who stole the livelihood from her, who stole the society that she wanted her kids to grow up in from her. And she even quotes with Virginia after they kind of make up as Victor kind of sees Virginia's moves as half measures. She says, if we cannot engineer salvation for our men, then vengeance will suffice. And it is so, so poignant and brilliant. I love it. I love Victra. What, what thoughts do you have on Victra? So just before that quote, there is the moment of Virginia kind of presenting her st- her scars to yeah. Victra, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that point 
is what really turned Victra's anger away from Mustang. An understanding of the pain. Yeah. Kind of will be, uh, assuming they go forward together in the next book, this will be kind of the inception point of their, oh God, it's not friendship. It's not their friendship. It's their dual companionship, I guess. That's not the right term either, I know. But like their joining is right here. Yeah, right. They're sort of convening in this moment. Yeah. <sighs> Fuck. <laughs> yeah, man. This also gives me hope for that that VV pairing that we were talking about earlier. Like, let the let the V's be badasses in the next book. And yeah. I'm a firm believer that that'll happen between the two of them. And, so. and, and Volga. Don't forget yeah, Volga. Right. Add Volga in for sure. Without Otherwise, idea. they're just a W. Fair, fair point. Triple U, is that better? Triple U. There you go. Triple U. Oh, man. So the final words of the section, of course, are that that the rim has come with the core, has has become one with the core, and has taken back Earth from the Vox, we assume, because the Vox holds it, ultimately. It's not the Republic anymore. It's the Vox. The Vox still holds Luna, um, even though they're kind of puppeteered by the Abomination but truly, it appears as though it is Mars versus the entire solar system now. Not to say that there aren't rebel factions and things like that among everyone else, but, you know, we are at a loss for easy ways out of this situation. So there's there's a quote at the end of this saying that, effectively saying that Lysander is the one that brought all of this to head. And my initial reaction is, no, they didn't know that. Like, there's no way he's the only one responsible for this. But at the same time, thinking about, like, all the things that he did very recently made all of this possible. Mm -hmm. And this is going on the assumption that Lerastes didn't turn until presented with the opportunity to with Lysander. And I don't know. Taking everything at face value. Lysander is the linchpin for all of this, and it's fucking crazy. But at the same time, I think they're still putting too much credit on Lysander for making all this happen, even though it's potentially true. Like, does that, does that make sense? Like, I I think it's ironic that they're right. I yes, I do understand what you're saying. Them being like it being kind of an ironic correctness here, because. They almost shouldn't have arrived at this point without like we can arrive at it because dramatic irony and we understand everyone's perspective. But it only makes sense like the only character that logically makes sense for to have like deconstructed to this point is Virginia because she has enough wherewithal to have identified this to an extent, you know, right. Did that match up with what you're saying? Like, does yeah. that? Yeah, to an extent. Was that enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. OK, just making sure I didn't want to underplay it, but I, I agree with you. It. it large it's like it it would have happened but not to the same extent as it happened mm -hmm. lysander made a difference but did he make the difference that's kind of like is he is he the person to peg this on like they are yeah and i don't i don't entirely agree with that because i think that they're the the game of cards that Atlantia had played up until this point was fantastic. She she was doing so well with deception using Julia Bologna, the the whole thing. 
she's been playing excellently. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that it was necessary. Like Lysander is a bonus, but maybe he's a maybe he's a dead weight. He could be a dead weight. Mm-hmm. We'll see. With that chapter, the final chapter of the book of us reading the series until the next book until the final book comes out chapter 92 graveyard of tyrants just a couple of things here left to talk about but to start it off here there's there's a quote that i love um lysander of course is abandoned here asked left alone with a bounty of food placed upon a, a long banquet table so as to appease Apollonius, and he informs Rhone and the others to pick him up in two hours and gives them extra copies of his will just in case he dies. Because <laughs> you can fucking trust Apple. Yeah. <laughs> the absolute madman. But the, the quote here, The sense of insignificance and guilt I permitted Cassius to instill within me has not disappeared, but remains in the back of my mind as a reminder of the fate one can accept if he lets the mercy of others define him. Darrow's mercy all those years ago. Cassius's mercy in serving as my protector. Calendora's last testament. All of it rooted in the same vain attempt to rekindle honor they long ago sacrificed for one reason or another. I think, as with all things, honor is best appreciated in moderation, as is cruelty. And where to begin? Lysander is finally recognized now that he's being treated. He's been treated by everyone as this fucking child. Um not not widely respected and lied to for decades of his life and is here to strike out on his own throwing away his self-righteous attempts at the purity of the image of an iron gold and sheds it like a molting skin of a snake for one of a victorious conqueror which feels like it fits with the loon lineage so my my read on this is that this is truly the inception of a very dark force for the next book he is not only disregarding and like just kind of casting aside the kindnesses afforded to him by basically everybody that's helped raise him to a certain extent, but he's rationalizing that attempt at um, kindness as vain attempts at making amends with karma or something like that. Yeah, no, I feel like that's spot on. This is this is the the inception of something truly, truly twisted for Lysander because he's smart enough to really wield that in a horrible way, which I think is what he's doing here, right? Yeah, like he is exactly. he with with the arguments of Calendora, he has passed a point of no return. Like he has become a dark, dark character. And that is so problematic in so many ways for like the next book, because all of a sudden, like he's been fake honor bound now with Lysander potentially unleashed and like let off the leash. All he has to do is justify to other people like his actions. There's no telling what he can do, what he can manage, what he can accomplish. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's dangerous, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, dangerous is one way he to is, put it. He is now he he went from like a a mild threat um of whom, you know, like had a philosophical point in the story, you know, like a perspective to now he's he's not only a mild threat, he is a valid threat and he's dangerous and now he's being made more dangerous because everyone that he believed was rooting for him is actually against him and so he 
is now truly becoming a lone wolf and that it's problematic for everyone yeah. else. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be tough to deal with. In a similar tone, but a little bit different, um, I, I love the little line. <laughs> uh, one does not simply summon the Minotaur. <laughs> it just, it's totally a Boromir line, right? Like, it's it, that's yeah, 100% course. what it is. Yeah. It's Sean Bean there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I can imagine that. It, yep. Can't, can't help myself, but yeah. yeah. Exactly. On top of that, man, have I missed Apollonius's eloquent madness. It shows up. It, it's it's great to kind of have this return to form and to have him show up and, and see this sort of speech patterns again. And the deal that's struck between the two of them really showing, like you said, who Lysander's become here is is something else. It's shocking. It's jarring. And the way that they shake hands and kind of agree on this sort of kill list that Apollonius is holding out, you know, mostly the grimaces first and Atlas Ra tagged into the list um, until, you know, the end. And he, he just cheers him, shakes his hand and says to the trembling of worlds. And that is a terrifying line. It's a fantastic, evocative line. This is going to be fucking rough, man. Yeah. This is g- no. This is going to be doubt. fucking rough. <sighs> yep. Yep. Can you imagine waiting like two and a half years for this book? Can you imagine um, the pain I feel. Mostly? Well, I mean, I'm gonna start to. Yeah, I'm gonna start you're, to you're feel that. Fucking yeah. shit! Like I, I so, feel how I, I understand how all you listeners feel now. Not to the yeah. same extent because obviously you actually lived through it. But fuck. Our final comment on this book is a quick and dirty one. And it is the graveyard of tyrants of whom are all pointing as opposed to Loon, where they belong, where the where the head of the society is. They're instead pointing towards Mars. And I think that, that is a fantastic scene to end with, as we've had many different moments pointing towards the next thing at the end of these stories. And oh, fuck. Here it is. There it is. Yeah. Um, beyond beyond just narratively them pointing at Mars, um, the culmination of two different trilogies coming home, Mm -hmm. coming home to Mars seems like a wonderful, wonderful, like wrap up, wonderful idea. So I'm excited. I don't know what exactly what it means, but I know it's going to be fun. I'm sure Phobos will play a part, a big part. Well, at least a New York city size part. (laughs) We'll play a fine part. A fine I'm just, part. I'm just ready for all the cooks to come out of the wood, woodwork. Cooks, and... all the Browns are going to show up, man. Let's not let's not discount the fact it's his, it's the dude's last name. He's gonna they're going to show up at the end. Don't yep. don't not quote me on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with that, we would generally move into PJ's predictions, but here we're not going to predict anything because a like the next book is nowhere near but b we are also going to be doing a larger prediction episode right we want to we want to do something a little bit different so send in anything that you want pj to comment on going forward to the next book um we would love to like do like a little mini episode that's pretty much just interactive so send us thoughts send us notes we will comment on it um you have until the 22nd of october to get those in so when did, when should this come out? This comes out on the 15th. So it's like 15th. eight days. 
I'm gonna send out the APB tomorrow, though. You got like a when week. I already did, did. Yeah, you've got a week. That's that's the game plan. So send good. those in. That's our question of the week as well. Um, but we're gonna talk about the last two weeks' question of the weeks here. So the question of the week that we've been talking about for a bit now, since Ephraim died, is what's your favorite earned death? To start it off here. We've got our members of our Discord, Cold-Blooded007. Regarding earned deaths, I'd say Arthas from WoW. He is, as you kind of stated very eloquently over, over a couple of different messages, he is kind of the definition of, uh, you know, good for the cause and, like, fighting through to to do the right thing, but for all the wrong reasons or with all the wrong intents. Um, and I adore Arthas. I think that he is one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. Um which is why I brought him up at the beginning of Iron Gold. So I, I cannot agree with you more. And I think that this was this was my choice until you said it. So great, great call out for sure. Also from the Discord, Artificer. When Iron Man snaps at the end of Endgame, sacrificing himself to save the world from Thanos and his army. I feel like that strictly and explicitly fits into this theme of noble sacrifice. I guess. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not you know, like the other part of this earned death thing is it's not it's not just noble, it's also ignoble, right? Like yeah. there are people who deserved death who earned it and died appropriately. So that's kind of why True. we're kind of toying around this, right? So yeah, yeah, for sure. But but in a similar way, since we're talking about two noble deaths in a row, Donna from her Discord said the earned death that immediately came to mind for me was Thorin Oakenshield at the end of the Battle of Five Armies. Like Ephraim, he sacrificed himself so that others of the company could survive. Well done, Thorin. I couldn't agree more. I think that Thorin totally fits the theme. I think that that dude is a fantastic example. And unfortunately, the movies in which he's encompassed are not as good as the Hobbit story. But that's just me. True. Um, from Ivana. Well, then I'll go with Boromir from the Two Towers. He's my favorite Lord of the Ring character, and he died protecting the hobbits. His last words with Aragorn. Aragorn. Jesus, how the fuck yeah, did I Aragorn. fuck that? The fuck is that? Completely different book series. I am reading. I'm not thinking. Um, <laughs> it's an A, not an E. Anyway. Sh- shut the fuck up. His last words with Aragorn are heartbreaking, which is absolutely true. Yeah. what i would have picked if ivana hadn't picked it ahead of me so could not agree more good choice it's a great choice boromir is a a sacrifice for all time all ages mm. oh. so with that we move to the instagram ones that that came to us from instagram uh bradley 2181 great to hear from you bradley you say harmony and yeah fuck yeah <laughs> harmony earned her fucking death for sure yes, she, she deserved every moment of that that fucking pit viper poison and those eggs laid inside of her and turning herself into a venomous piece of shit because fuck her god damn it's almost too kind so storms and i know the first s probably isn't to be pronounced but i'm gonna do it anyway <laughs> uh tommy from never let me go ishiguro so much catharsis. I am not familiar with this. I actually don't know either. Um, this is this is unique. This is something that I'll I'll have to check out. So, yeah. Um, don't know whether or not to disagree or agree, but I would say that 
frequently uh anime arcs play around with death a lot more seriously so i'm i'm in on the idea yeah for sure all right uh our, our good buddy zef hey zef Django fett motherfucking had it coming of course he did yeah yeah dude deserved it dude spawned the clone omri dude was in on it dude had problems was just out for money deserved to die deserved to die but I'm very intrigued into the Boba Fett series coming out this uh, this December, needless to say. Uh, D- Daniel Kenamore, heiress from Final Fantasy VII. She fought her way to the Forgotten City to summon Holy and to die to join the live stream and stop Meteor. To most people, that probably sounds like word salad if you haven't played Final Fantasy. But That is true. I don't understand what's being said here. It is, again, fitting it within the Instagram characters. Great work because you explain the entire story very succinctly. Um, But I, I, yeah, I I totally agree. Um, The the sacrifice of Aerith is is a huge deal. And I cannot imagine a more fitting character. I'm very intrigued into the direction that Final Fantasy VII Remake is going. Because she doesn't die where she does. If you haven't played it, um, don't listen to that. But it's too late, so I can't undo it. So, yep. you know, it's neat. Fair enough. PJ, what's yours? Uh, Nux from Mad Max Ooh. Fury Road. The, yeah. uh, the Blood Boy. No, yeah, not Blood, Blood Boy. Boy. Uh, Mad is, Max is his Blood Boy. Blood Bag, yeah. Blood Bag. What yeah. would he be referred to as? War Boy. Nux war is war boy. boy. War yep. Boy. Yeah, yep. so Nux the War Boy. Um... Because it, it is the the turn and subsequent sacrifice paired with what he's been striving for, which was his his sort of his whisper of witness me to them, at, like before he like turns his war machine into the into the choke point. Um. It's everything he wanted at the same time. It is a complete 180 in his character. It's such a cool way to end him. I loved it. Mm, I, I definitely agree. I think that it's it's fantastic because he is kind of, you know, there are multiple protagonists of that story, but in his own way, he becomes, he grows and he changes like a protagonist would. So I, I find his character arc fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastically written story. Definitely love that one. When I read that in the script, I was like, fuck yeah, that's a great choice. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I I, and I think that this is a little bit of recency bias um, and like having to kind of pick through a number of the ones that have already been said. But to to differentiate a little bit, um, I recently was listening to actually literally today (laughs) watch through aliens again for the first time in a while and listen to a podcast from one of my favorite podcasting group uh, doof media they put out an episode today literally on aliens bringing down james cameron and i have to say that fucking burke from aliens fucking deserves it that (laughs) young executive who ultimately doomed that entire fucking colony by sending them out to that alien vessel telling them to investigate dude earned his alien impregnation and or the murder death (laughs) regardless like we he dies off screen we know that he's going to die from a chestburster or something else and a-okay with that a-okay with he earned that he fucked over so many people for a profit on something that he didn't understand whether or not it was going to be profitable for fuck you dude especially with a bunch of religious colonists like how dare you exactly fucking shit 
Fucking so, shit. For next week, this is less for next week and more for the weeks following. Uh, the the thing that we're going to be talking about is obviously like send in any questions that you have, any predictions, anything you want us to talk about for the last episode of the season. Quote, we'll call it. Um, since it's been a year, it kind of feels appropriate for like you know this this to be the bookend before we go into Mistborn. So, uh, spend some time, think about questions, and send them in. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to answer them. After that, we are incredibly excited next week to have Pierre Ford on the show to discuss everything Red Rising. Yes. Oh my God, I'm so excited. We already got like initial notes back from from the script and and well, script quote all the prompts that we generally send out and she was like can i swear and i was like fuck yeah you can you better swear <laughs> she's like because i'm australian and i can't help it and i'm like yeah no i totally get it good call yeah. um it was so <laughs> excited so it's good it's gonna be a great time i can already tell yeah it's gonna be super fun so that's where we'll leave you for the week thank you as always tim and andrew for keeping our shows lights on Check out our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our socials, fucking everything, all in one convenient location. Yeah, we also want to take a second to thank our new patron, Hyena Frog. Thank you so much for joining us at the bar, uh, bar back level. And it, it means it means a million to be supporting us and to have you join us this month. So thank you so much. Beyond that, if you have any other questions or anything like that, like PJ said, check out the schedule. Leave us a review. Do whatever it is you can do to support us because we love you and we hope other people love us as much as you do. So share share that love a little bit around. Yep. Yep. Share it. It was a little bit hippie-ish, but here that, we are. That was a little weird, man. It's fine. It's fine. I'm editing. It doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> See you later, folks. Goodbye. <laughs>